0: The new Ford Mustang is so beautiful it's been honored with a special
1: award from Tiffany and Company. And... And its price is something really hard to believe. $2,368 FOB Detroit. It's so unexpected. And it's so darn practical. You can get the groceries and everything in the trunk and all the Baxters and Smiley and me inside. (laughs) Oh, boy, it's... Oh, I gotta get me a new word. The Mustang's more than just a doozy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, 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 here we are once again, the gruesome twosome
1: of... Saturday night movie sleepover coming down coming at you <laughs> it's our um we're gonna start wrestling our wrestling names um we should come up with wrestling names that would be really fun having um you know uh mean Dion <laughs> Blake the animal Jay the animal Blake <laughs> or um I don't know we'd have to come up, maybe people can submit. <laughs> so is, that, is that just a bad idea to ask people to start naming wrestling names like, you know, it could be ridicule?
0: Yeah. <laughs> don't submit.
1: Yeah, don't do not do that. Um, so we're back again. It's been very exciting the past couple weeks. Summer, back to school. Back to school. Yeah, summer is officially over-ended. And we have a perfect back to school movie today. <laughs> perfect <laughs> back to school for, for all those kids who are ready <laughs> the night before they... Uh, they're going, you know, it's like that last, it's that Sunday night. They don't <laughs> want to go to bed. They can't sleep. Mom's like, I got a perfect, uh, you know, Sunday night Disney movie for you. We're going way down the alley. 1968. 50 years. Yeah, it's the 50th anniversary this October. It's this funny. Day. <laughs> this day. This <laughs> very day. Um, this is the kind of movie where it's like, um, you know, when you have your friends sleep over? And you want to show your friend something? You can tell your friend ain't interested. <laughs> and then for the whole time, you're like suggesting, like you know, your friend wants to watch Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. want to watch like um, Flash Gordon. Well, there's,
0: I think there's a misnomer about me. Yeah, I've I f- I found this trend. I think with some people, I think you might feel this way because of the way I react to some of the movies you bring up. I know our friend Aaron is under this. Uh, assumption that I don't like animated movies, and I think you at one point were like, "Well, you don't really like westerns." And the truth is, I like all kinds of movies. I just judge them all equally. <laughs>
1: yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't categorize. I mean, I don't. collect
0: animation art, so I mean, I have to
1: like. Animation what was the idea? Well, who, because it was me who said that you didn't like animation. I don't remember yeah.
0: No, Not animation. I think you were like, "Well, you I don't, don't really you like, I remember like the westerns. The westerns." Yeah, we were talking. Aaron, about. My friend Aaron thinks I don't like animated movies, and it's like, no, I just. Look, I just don't like every Pixar movie that comes out because it's a Pixar movie.
1: Do you see the... Like, um, I don't like
0: any movie... B- I don't like every movie just... Any movie just because it's part of a particular genre. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, even though I'm kind of uh, labeled a horror guy, that kind of just started... Because when we were in college, I think it was a bit of a rebellious thing. and yeah. I, And I think... That in the late '90s, even though Scream had been popular, <coughs> horror for the most part, especially in an art school setting, art film, film like a like a really arty film school program like we were in, like horror needed some championing. No, I completely <laughs> agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, so I, we I, I, w- I was ready to take that flag, that and torch, <laughs> and you were going <laughs> to run with it, the but baton. In, but there's way more horror movies that I don't like than I do like. Yeah. Uh, so, I think the. You know, Dion is partial to like these se- these gritty seventies crime movies. Um it's mm-hmm. not the only thing he likes. And I think the only and I I like them too. The only thing is that like to me they're not like my go to to wanna talk about on this yeah. show. It doesn't mean I don't like them. Like yeah. I love taking it 2 well, one two three when we did it. Who doesn't? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> like I like Bullet. I mean yeah. this is not the seventies, but uh know, yeah, I like the Dirty Harry films. I just you love uh, Maud. <laughs> you know, to me, it's just... Uh, it's not your go uh, It's not the first thing that comes to mind when it comes to this show. Or Sleepover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I didn't rent these kinds of movies with my friends. Yeah. I watched them either on my own or with my parents. And it's just it's a different vibe for me. Um, but... Uh, so I'm just getting that I'm just getting that like I I like things other than you know like Karate Kid <laughs> yeah of course of course <laughs> and, and like teenage uh, coming of age stories I like all movies I, I like how
1: though you're able to that's I think it's one of your strengths is you're able to find the like you know in a lot of these not not a lot of them because this sounds like a dig but it's like you know we'll find a movie you'll be like i want to see the movie before like greece you know like you don't care about what happened oh, when you yeah. to school <laughs> so, <laughs> so we i want to see a movie i want to <laughs> see
0: what happened during,
1: during when they're singing about summer 11 i want to see the summer
0: before yeah, you want to see <laughs> the. you want to see the uh I'm a romantic
1: yeah art. you, you want to see the what do you call it you want to see the uh uh the courting you yeah. know the courtship of it all i
0: think a good summer love movie is uh you know, I've I've, I've had one in, in the in the in the f- I've filed it away as as a script I'd like to write someday. Not the Piqued of Greece, but like a a summer love type movie. I like all kinds of movies. Yeah, yeah, including you know the kind of movie we're doing today, which is not really that far off to the kind of movie we did last week. <laughs> I know, just you know a
1: difference of uh, of forty of. years yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's not very different from what we did. Two months ago, a month and a half ago, we're taking a 2 one, two, three, like you just said. Yeah, you know, we're 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 kind of in, in, embellishing our. Uh, we're going like we're opening like the first couple years of the of the podcast. We opened the closet. And we were taking the, t- the shirts right off the front of the rack. We're, like, we're going to <laughs> wear this. We're going to wear this. wear this. And now we're like opening the back up a little bit, looking at the stuff at the back of the closet, we're looking at stuff like that. So, um, I, I, I meant only because uh, you know I've been so excited to do this for so very long. You know, and you're like, yeah, it's good, okay. You know, we can get to it. You know, sure. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you know? know, it's. Uh, I think so it's that was the analogy of me, like, you know, with the video. Like, <laughs> you, you sure you don't want to watch this? No, no. Come on, let's watch. Put the other one in.
0: I think <clears throat> I would be really interested to see what people who f- see this movie now for the first time what they'd think of it. Yeah, because it's it's an interesting film from a dramatic standpoint and from a time period standpoint. Uh, you could easily, and this is not a dig against the movie, it's just that from today, from looking at it from like a modern film, yeah, film viewer's view, like I, like you could easily cut like a half hour out of this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't. Of, in the nowadays pacing. And you wouldn't hurt like anything plot yeah. wise. Like you wouldn't even have to, wouldn't, I'm not even talking about like whole scenes. Like you could literally trim, trim yeah. every scene by a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. trim this or that or
1: details and stuff. Uh,
0: that kind of stuff doesn't usually bother me. I didn't and it doesn't particularly bother me here. There's a couple of scenes like the surgery scene where yeah. he's like, you know, you we get it. Yeah. <laughs> but there is this kind of thing that Peter Yates is trying to do with those the director, and for those in case we didn't mention, but doing bullet yes. tonight. Yes. Uh, he has a very he's trying to capture a documentary feel through a lot of this movie, so I think a lot of that is lost it, on it drags a yeah. little bit, but I get what the intention is and it doesn't so it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I can sit through a lot of things that most people would find boring. I'm not saying that most people would find this movie boring, but like pacing is not a huge issue for me. <laughs> like I'm yeah. perfectly content with something <laughs> that's slowly paced, if, as long as like like f- something about it is keeping my interest. That doesn't matter if it's going at a yeah, snail's pace. Yeah, you, face you or notoriously
1: not. loved, um, What's his face is uh, the Russian director Stanislavski. or the guy who did Solaris. Oh, Stanislavski's uh, the, act, the the lauded um, acting teacher. Um, uh, what's his face? He did? Uh, but you liked his Stalker.
0: Stalker, yeah. No, I, I stalker like Solaris like too. A, um, Tarkovsky?
1: Tarkovsky, yeah. Solaris is great. Stalker I have to rewatch because I only saw it that one time we watched it in film school and, and you it was- slept through
0: like an, an hour, hour and a half
1: of it. Yeah, and then I woke <laughs> up and it, they, they hadn't even gone left yet. <laughs> 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 that's for the journey. You know, and then it was like, you know, uh, and that was a, and that's an institution. I've talked to people who are from Russia uh, that like say like, yeah, that, that is something. The problem just, with know, that be,
0: movie is, and we're not going to get on a big Stalker tangent, but the problem with that movie is that we saw it a sixteen millimeter, but still, we saw like a very nice print of it projected. Yeah, and I just don't think that movie is ever. Maybe now with like four K and even Blu Ray, maybe now it can be viewed
1: or appreciated. Pre- okay. Like,
0: because it's just something. It's a. It's all like this. It's very visceral. That's well, like it's, that's
1: like an example of Dunkirk. And, and there's something about the way it
0: looks. Yeah, yeah. Have just to like, have that experience. That like VHS and even DVD, we're not going to be able to
1: capture yeah. for that movie. Yeah, I, I understand. I see that. You know, sometimes you need to have that kind of uh, experience in a movie, or like these big. You know, like I just saw the Murder on the Orient Express, the uh, one that Kenneth Branagh did, and it's yeah. like it, it's great, but it, they shot it on, I, on like 60 millimeter, which you can, or 64, which you can blow up to 70 and he he used the last time those cameras were used when he used them when he did his Hamlet in the 90s. Yeah. So it's like that's great, but who are actually <coughs> going to play, you know, this in 70mm, Murder on the Orient Express, you yeah, know, in yeah. true 70. So that, that must look, awe inspiring to go see that, but for and that's the that's the downside of again of like The Dunkirk. Great movie, but if you take that out of context and you have somebody watching it on their cell phone on the train yeah, well, out yeah. of that little and I'm not sh- a, shitty
0: speaker. I'm not really a huge F- fan of Christopher Nolan's movies in general. Yeah. I mean, I like some of them. I, I'm a big fan of The Prestige. and
1: Yeah, I like The Prestige. Uh, the one in Alaska I liked.
0: I, you know, I don't... You know, I'm just not a... I'm not a, a not fan. I'm yeah. just not a fan. Yeah, you <laughs> you're know. just a casual...
1: You walk by the window look <clears throat> in, but you'll He's Close not it. a
0: director that I'll be like, ooh, Christopher Nolan directed
1: that. I have to see
0: it. But I saw Dunkirk in the movie theater... And when I came out, I was like texting people. I was like, you have to go see this in the movie theater. Yeah. And my dad was like, yeah, but my dad and my brother were like, yeah, but then there's going to be other people there.
1: (laughs) That's my problem. And I
0: was like, look, even watching this on your TV at home is not going to do this film justice.
1: Yeah. And I can't, um, I missed it when it was in the theater and then they did a revival of it around Christmas time. I went on a weekend by myself to the Palisades, which I hadn't been to the Palisades oh yeah. Mall in so long. Because remember, Our they have an IMAX up around. there. yeah, <laughs> And that, that's about 20 minutes from me. So I went up there by myself on a matinee on a Sunday and saw it in IMAX. And, and I was two people in, the th- in this uh, theater. In yeah, LA. when
0: I saw it, I think I might have been by myself. No. And, I saw uh, it when I was in
1: L.A. Yeah. In an Arclight
0: Theater there. And I, I think I might have been the only person in the audience. And then
1: also, <laughs> the night before, I had some family drama go on. So I was very into like my grandfather was in World War II and was in the Italian, North Africa, and the Italian campaigns. So I had a lot of that going on. So when I saw it that Sunday, I brought all that emotional baggage with me. So it was <laughs> yeah, so much yeah. more visceral and surreal. So the point is, it's hard sometimes to see these kind of movies that that are, you know, you have to be seen a certain way. And then nowadays, for the past, I'd say, what, 20 years, attention spans are, there's none. You know, like, you, know, you, could, you could probably... Uh, if you look at critically like a lot of movie like Hitchcock or certain movies you could probably you know see that the pacing is too much nowadays like a Casablanca because people's tastes nowadays the popu- you know the, the the cinema audience that are digesting these movies they want quick quick you know <coughs> I think
0: you're right for a certain section of the audience I think they're really like the
1: popcorn <coughs> uh, you know
0: I think there are people probably and I'm being you know I'm presuming but I would imagine that there's a certain young faction of a movie going audience that, yeah, but you know, like these movies, the kinds of movies we're talking about may have never been intended for people of that age group. You know what I mean? So I think I, you know, I'm kind of split. I think that in a large, in a big way, yeah, people are idiots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, you know, on on a on a, in a very general sense. But then at the same time, I also am of the mind of like you can't underestimate an audience. Oh, of course. Yeah. And I think that if you have a movie that's slow paced, but genuinely good, people like I think people there's a I think there's a bigger section of the audience than either one of us probably would give them credit for that would just become emotionally involved yeah. and be able to go with it. It's a tough thing because it, things media and movies and filmmaking and the way we watch movies and and everything it's just it's so drastically different from even
1: when we were kids. Yeah, you know, that's the uh, this is an area where I think kind of like if if what you're saying is you could you can get the in any audience if in, if they're in the right mood they can watch anything and appreciate anything and and you know if they get invested in the character or the movie no matter what happens even if it's a slow burner they'll stay interested.
0: Yeah, I mean I think a good movie is a good movie. Yeah. And I, and I, and, I, and when I say a good movie I don't necessarily just mean like cin- like cinema cinematic art. Yeah. I mean something that like I was just watching uh a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I I <coughs> As I get older, I I start to appreciate and recognize the kinds of movies that are the movies that I'll watch any time they're on or I can put in any time and enjoy it. And they're not, for the most part, they're not heavy films dramatically. They're not, you know, like I said, quote-unquote cinematic art. They're the kind of, they're like, you know, the comfort. The ones that we want to make.
1: Yeah, but,
0: you know, like, so to me it's like it's a lot of music related movies but like for instance I was just watching and here's a movie that nobody ever talks about or I've never heard anybody talk about and I could I co- watch this movie all, every day it's called Here Comes the Boom <laughs> with Kevin James and it's with Kevin James and Henry Winkler and Selma Hayek and uh, the gist is that uh, they're teachers and uh, Henry Winkler's the music teacher yeah. and they're going to cut the mu- music program and he's about to have a kid and kevin james kind of steps up to the plate and says well like what if we find him the money i mean there's more to it than that and to find the money he becomes uh when they realize that they can't actually raise the money in conventional ways he become. He decides to become a mixed
1: martial arts like UFC fighter. Oh yeah, okay. And he actually like. F- and then it it it, it kind of has a turn for the end. It looks from the previews. It looks serious. Like it's actually like. A, like you know like it's you a turn know, like it becomes but, like a Rocky.
0: Like i li- like yeah, you're you loving know, like
1: it. I literally like I laugh at that movie.
0: I laugh when I watch that movie at the time. i like it plays me like a fiddle that yeah. movie. <laughs> I get all teared up. Uh, you know, or just like for instance, Blade. Uh, not Blade. De- Deadpool two I just watched yeah. for the first time, uh, and I, I wasn't a huge fan of the first one. I liked it just fine, but I wasn't like, oh, Deadpool like an R rated. To me, I don't t- tend to get drawn to superhero movies that are comedic. Yeah, I'm the same way. You know, like I like my super like I like Ragnar like Thor Ragnarok, but I don't like it as much as most people because most people kind of really enjoy like the fun can be yeah. com- comedic aspect of yeah. that movie that I'm just not that into so I like the first blade. Uh, I don't know why I keep on saying blade. I like the blades <laughs> I like the first Deadpool movie but I don't know like I was just got, I got way sucked into Deadpool the you know? second one like, I have to I see I w- was laughing out loud <laughs> I was a mess <laughs> you know at the end I haven't seen Thor yet and I haven't seen the Deadpool too yet. Uh, the Deadpool <laughs> so these are the kinds of movies yeah. that you know might not necessarily be put on the same kind of tier of something like Casablanca or even Bullet yeah but to me they're good movies because at least for me as a viewer, like they work. Yeah. You know, like I'm I get emotionally invested. They they do they accomplish their the purpose, escapism, which is to entertain me, but also to uh you know have some kind of effect on me. You yeah. know, like it, it plays on my emotions in a way that, you know, good drama can and even though these movies aren't necessarily considered quote unquote good by conventional standards, they they work. And yeah. so I think if you had a movie that is slow as shit but it's a good movie
1: people will be into it
0: i think people would be into it but i would be interested to see what audiences have to say about this movie because it's not like i said it's not conventionally uh it's not typical yeah even for the time i think even like the script is interesting it's a little bit meandering uh there's no clear, uh, uh, con, you know, conflict in in a in a traditional like script sense.
1: And the resolution, his motivation
0: is, kind of, yeah. is questionable. Not questionable in that like is he doing it for the right reasons? It's just that like, what are his motivations? I, th- I was reading something where the guy was arguing about how like it, there's not you know it's not, he's not doing it because of a of the love story which there is a bit of a love story he's not doing it for this he's not doing it for that and to me like i don't th- like it doesn't bother me that it's not like a spoon-fed uh formula script that we're used you to you know th- you know the kind of <coughs> conflict that he's emotionally invested in and that's why he's fighting so hard you could argue that like the younger guy on his team gets Shot and he feels responsible and that's why he's. But it's never really clear to me. The fact that he's a police officer and he's doing it because it's his duty and it's what's right is enough of a motivation (laughs) to to be all right. A lot (laughs) of people (laughs) like I can believe that this is his job. This is what he's supposed to do, and that's all he needs be able to want to pursue it like you know adequately and 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 solve
1: it a, a lot of people uh over the years have have made gripes about the the actual plot in the story yeah. but before we leave the other uh what we were just talking about i was recently watching uh with the only person who i really do a lot of, aside from you watching with uh my wife we were watching i think a horror i forget what horror movie it was but we were watching something and you know uh even when you have the best intentions sitting on a couch lights are out everything you know <clears throat> sometimes you're going to pause it for I got to go to the bathroom I got to get another beer I got to do something the dog's acting up maybe the kid's crying yeah. you know and to me I feel like we're, we've entered an era now uh, whereas when you go to the movies the cinema you're forced to like shut the hell up you know, watch uh, your. Mo- you know what I mean. I don't know if that's the case anymore. I know, <laughs> but, but like, <laughs> it should be. <laughs> you're supposed to. You know, you're supposed to eat your popcorn, go to the bathroom before the movie, and, and sit down and try to watch and you know digest the movie in one sitting. And I feel like nowadays that is completely gone. And for for an example, for like a horror movie that's detrimental to, like, a horror movie's, you know, the whole, you know, or even a good thriller or whatever. They want to rope you in. You want to keep this tension or suspense yeah. going. And if you're going to stop it, even if, there's you know. There's a rhythm. Yeah.
0: That, like you said. And, and, and you they, lose that. So you, There's a build, and, and they're playing with suspense, and it, then you pause it for a second. You lose all that. You kind of lose all You know, all or
1: that. you get up and you go to the bathroom, or you start arguing with the person, then you get slapped. You know, it's like. <laughs> but, so even with this movie, it's like, you know. uh, you you could find it good you may not find it not good but then it's hard to have someone sit down and actually be in the right mood be open minded enough to give it a try be into it and then keep the rhythm that it's supposed to be the director Yates is supposed to be giving to you yeah, yeah. you know so it's it's hard and and that's going to be I think going forward a lot of these shows maybe that's the reason why now these Netflix shows are a little more uh um Uh, engageable, if that's a word for people, because they're shorter and they're, you know, and they're, and it's a quick, a little more of like a radio arc or, you know, a play like, you know, a a serial, like stay tuned next week where, uh, we just live in this world where people, you know, are, are, you know, they have like, uh, attention deficit disorders. So they're either looking on their phone or, you know, that's another thing, you know, like you just said, going to the movies, I can't have, you know, just people, you, you see the cameras coming up, they're talking or whatever, they're getting up, they're, you know, it's just like, so it's yeah. like, I think it's getting harder for the true artisan in, or, you know, in cinema or in movies to be able to present something that's going to be digested the way it's supposed to, you know, or the true, because cause you got a lot riding against you nowadays, especially if you're not a Marvel one of these movies that every five or ten minutes you have that scripted bang.
0: Well, you know what's interesting, and you'd have to, as a listener of this podcast, you'd have to go back to say our Deep Red cast, Paffondo where I talk about that was a couple summers ago how
1: oh the with the um, how the Italians yeah, viewed
0: movies. We kind we kind of have turned into that. Like yeah, we, we kind of we you know go back for the whole discussion. Go back to our our Deep Red discussion, yeah. but in in essence what the discussion was was that viewers of that time of the uh, Italian moviegoers it was a very social event you'd go and you would talk to your friends and you would kind of leave and then you would go talk to somebody you know you'd see somebody else during uh, the movie during
1: while the movie yeah, was so going you, so yeah. in the cinema you'd get up you'd say hey look there's John C- Carlos you go to hey you know buongiorno blah, 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 and then you'd watch a little of the movie then you'd be like hey look it's Blake Blake come sta you go down and this was like a well, um, an accepted yeah, behavior. Yeah, because for some reason television,
0: even by the 60s and 70s, hadn't become a big thing in Italy yet. So As it had in America and yeah, Europe, other parts Yeah, so, I mean, they had yeah. it, obviously, but it just wasn't the kind of they didn't. They didn't embrace it the That's way.
1: maybe the social culture. You know, like yeah. you don't think about like even eating for them is. You know, yeah, us yeah. So we're Paisan Italians. <laughs> you know, it's it's a get together it's an experience. experience. Yeah, yeah so you
0: know, movie going was that way, and it and it and it, f- it informed the way they made movies in terms of the giallo movies, the horror movies, the exploitation type movies that came out of Italy that would have these Those where Westerns like, where and, like yeah. perhaps plot wasn't necessarily as important or it was sim- more simple f- simplified so that you could follow it without paying attention that much or it just didn't matter at all and then they would hit you with either like nudity or gore or violence because they, they, wanted, soundtrack. To, they wanted to draw you back yeah. into and it the would movie move. people
1: would stop talking watch like someone get killed on the screen in an Argento movie or someone gets shot in a Leone in, movie and then go back to that weird plot in
0: some way it's like we have because of social media and just the way we view things now i feel like we've gotten we've become more that yeah and maybe movies going forward will need to be more that way to be kind of successful they'll need to be a little more
1: uh gomless or kind of like just like pedestrian well not pedestrian but they'll need to have
0: moments that will
1: exploit those kinds of
0: things to draw us back yeah in, yeah you know the way the way you know some of those spaghetti westerns did and
1: those things that are like oh shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, even even uh, I can't think of one readily now but like in, in Indiana Jones where they, they they have cooked in the books of so the script is every 10 minutes we're gonna have a big sight gag or a big action sequence yeah. like a lot of those classic Star Wars you know whereas every you know, a couple pages, we're going to have something exciting happen. It's going to be like you'd see in the old, like, again, the serials or the books, the escapism like that. So here, this is, it's a, a completely unique plot in that kind of a sense. It's its weird because you look at the other things that are coming out in 68. This is Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I don't know if we've <laughs> introduced we ourselves. We, we?
0: we did introduce the show. That's not, not, in
1: tr- not in our typical
0: sense. but
1: That's Blake over there. This is here. And we're doing stuff today. You should, for
0: that part, you should be, that's Blake, and then just have it, like, on, you know, play with stereo. <laughs> <laughs> have
1: me on the right channel. And then she will, hey. Hey. Um, yeah. Hey. T- of the era of 68, this is coming out. You have a lot of other things going on where um, the world is changing, of course. We've talked until we were blue in the face about the civil rights and all that stuff, socially what's happening. And, uh, but in movie-wise, you're in the breaking of the code system. Uh, the uh, MPAA is starting to get kind of instated or you're losing the haze coat. The studio system's falling apart, certainly at this time. Mm-hmm. Hollywood is still doing, They, you know, they're invested in those big, grand kind of musicals like Dr. Doolittle or Chi Chitty, Chitty Bang Bang. Not saying those are bad movies, but yeah. you look at what's happening in, inside of culture in the world with stuff happening and, and civil unrest, and then the, we talk about escapism on tv people are watching shows about uh a, a witch as a wife a a freaking genie in a bottle as a wife uh satirizing concentration camps and hogan's heroes you know so people are just yeah you know who the hell knows what's going on and Things then like the monkeys and yeah Barger's you know family all those weird just you know where you have to be in the mood especially today to watch them and then on in the movies you're starting to get uh less is more, I guess, but you're starting to get swearing, you're starting to get nudity, and this this was unheard of. Violence. And then in 67, you have Bonnie and Clyde comes out, and that's the first time squibs are used, and that's revolutionary for the violence, and, and people are shocked and awed, and it's a huge hit. It solidifies Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. This movie comes out the next year, 68, and uh, we talked a little bit about it, like there, there was an emphasis on realism and doing things like in a documentary-style point of view and all that, and this was kind of new for people. And um, there's a lot of ways you can explore that in here, and then this beginning an archetype, which we've certainly talked about tons of times already on the cast, where yeah. this lent itself to becoming, um, you know, for police, dirty, hairy, you know, car f- f- movies in the 70s, or the action movie arc, or the thriller uh, vigilante arc, or the police cop arc that you see you know i
0: think you you, you've hit on a point that's very important which is that like the late 60s is a time where like the tides are turning things are changing not just socially politically you know throughout the country but the film you know the film industry and you're you're starting to get things like independent cinema, John Cassavetes, yeah. and then you start getting things like Easy Rider, and,
1: uh, The Wild Bunch for the gratuity and, and violence.
0: It's just, it, you know, the, this, kind of falling of the studio system is opening up doors, uh, for the, for kinds of movies that just previously weren't made before. And, th- and then eventually starts to lead to, uh, younger filmmakers that's when you get like the film school generation a couple years from now you know in the in the early 70s you have coppola and then this idea of making and we talk about this i think in the star wars cast a little bit where we get this idea of hiring young people young directors to make movies for young people because of the baby boom yeah you know you have like there's this influx
1: of young viewers or people just get this trend that uh i guess bullet is a little part of it gets played out so much by the middle to late 70s yeah well this people is kind are like of we're kind of like jesus we're you know the films like movies like all the all the president's men or um you know like we said easy rider but a lot of those socially conscious pointing the fingers at you know cinema or, or at society what you're doing wrong that by the late 70s you start getting the young guys doing like escapism like star wars is huge Indiana jones is big those kind of movies where people are like hey let's Just sit back and just, you know, get a popcorn and watch it with the kids. And then I have to worry about like me coming out feeling like an asshole because, (laughs) you know, the world we're in or whatever, you know. And also another big thing um, for this movie is the era of 67, 68 that police are very or not popular at all in this era. Um, especially in California, maybe in the Oakland area when with the, the clashes with the Black Panthers and all that. And you have, which is a point that we've touched upon um, hugely if you go back to the, our Randy Jurgensen interviews of him being a cop in that era, saying like police were on the front lines and for people in certain uh, neighborhoods or, or certain cities and areas, the, the police represented the man, quote unquote the authority figure. So whatever was going on politically or in the papers or the unrest, it Trickled down to this guy on the street is the one telling you not to do this, not to do that. Yeah. So because of that, and because of um, you know racism against uh, you know say African Americans and stuff, and and certainly in the South with all that you know the civil rights movements, you know police are viewed as almost like the enemy. So it is in '68. You do have movies where uh, you have Dragnet comes back on TV. It's called Dragnet. I think it's called 1968 or maybe 1967 is the and I think. That might be a case where every year it's different. Dragnet 1968, Dragnet 1969. But it's Jack Webb. Match Game. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But you have Jack Webb coming in. He brings uh, Harry Morgan, and they start doing Dragnet again. And that's very popular, the the straight procedural. But also, uh, of the era you start getting uh, cop movies that are, you know, there's a movie that comes out the same year as this called The Detective, from 1968, which I, when we did the Dirty Harry podcast, kept calling it Tony Rome, They're both Frank Sinatra movies. Frank Sinatra is the lead in Tony Rome, and but he's the movie here, The Detective, and that takes place in New York. And uh, I rewatched that prior for this cast, and very, very controversial. It's off a of book, uh, Detective. I forget his first name Leland but it's it has to do with like uh, homosexuality and the the F word fag is used every other minute the people it's all about like the uh gays are being killed and you know what's wrong with me am I gonna go become a gay quote you know it's like so it's like and it's like stuff where like nowadays you're like wow like this is you know how it's how it's being handled it's very like you know it's very hard for some audiences to watch but that movie still has the flair of that 60s kind of big studio feel. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, how they don't know really how to sell it. Frank Sinatra is, uh, you know, Leland, and he's a cop in a hard world. <laughs> you know, you know, know what I mean? You know, So, but getting back to here, it's, it's kind of a bold move to, to to take a story about a cop. And then I think what they're, what they're trying to do here, which ultimately fascinates me with this and then another movie, Dirty Harry, is trying to humanize the the the, the pers- uh the person involved especially in the era where the cop is looked at as yeah. a symbol of uh you know of authority and and, and oppression and you 're trying to show that you know this the, these guys are people too you know that that you know that have lives and that you know things hurt them and then the the, the sickness on the job or, or what you see on the job that you know could sometimes um you know really mess them up and trying to humanize them and show them that they're just real people like anybody else, but they have to do this job that they 're forced to do and you might not like police or i wouldn't say you wouldn't like firemen but you know, they're the first one you call in an emergency, and they're going to come running to help you save. You know, a yeah. uh, burning building or a shooting or whatever. Like that, you know, they're there to tr- for the large part to help the community and, and you know and pick up the pieces and try to help in emergency situation. So it was it's it's hard in the era of '68 to see that come out and do a pro cop movie in that sense without it being cynical or you know or showing him you know maybe. Using the N word or you know this kind of a thing and, and have it be quote unquote real and that's where it gets into now the pacing of the movie where it's nowadays it's like well you can kind of see where they're going with things like the surgery scene it's the first time believe it or not a lot of this is seen this way using non actors in such a way yeah. they're just using the people in the environment do what you do naturally we're just going to record it yeah you know? I mean
0: yeah it's kind of implying that you know for for all the hospital stuff like they didn't cast actors to play doctors and nurses they just had doctors and nurses do what they do
1: yeah. in the movie. Yeah, and that same thing with ambulance drivers in the movie and, and at the end, you know, the, the airport people. It's just like, you know, so that they can feel like you're you're just... There was a conscious effort for the camera with Yates, particularly, which I find fascinating, even more than I already did in the movie when researching this, is that, like, he wanted to use very long lenses. He's trying to stay sometimes in some situations very far out, and yeah. then you're zooming in so that you don't feel like you're... You're a character in the scene, but you're an, a, a passive observer. You're witnessing it all as you would like someone, you know, like uh, yeah. watching from afar. I think it's
0: successful, uh, that approach. There was, we watched a documentary, and fortunately, I can't recall the
1: name of it. But, <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> but but <laughs> we
0: watched a documentary when we were in film school, and the idea was, and I believe she was a, to my recollection, she was a female filmmaker but might have not been female but the she this filmmaker was accustomed to doing like national geographic type documentaries where you're observing like wildlife in their habitat and they made this documentary about this group of kids on like the streets of LA or San Francisco or something and it was just this group of teenagers that were homeless that had run away from home and they were just and it, it's really they shot it all from like long lenses, so they yeah. weren't up in their face, and they just kind of observed the this group of kids and and the way they lived from a distance. And there's something about this movie, especially for instance, like the date scene when they go to the the restaurant, oh, yeah. the jazz club, and it's no all shot all, from and like
1: and no dialogue, and it's a, it's a and then that for Yates is. Kind of his one, one or two of his favorite scenes in the movie. That, yeah, or it's just it's just setting a mood, and that's an interesting point. Where that's the date scene to me. A lot of these movies from the 60s and early 70s feel dated, 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 and you have to watch them, like, say, with the music. Sometimes you get a movie where it's like, it's a period movie, but at the beginning there's like a folk song during the credits, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. by like Paul Williams get, or John Denver. Or
0: you get something, you know, fro- like, book- like Ashley you know, and the Sundance Kid, where there's like this musical interlude. The raindrops keep falling <laughs> on my
1: Or Even the movie, we love Seconds, Frankenheimer. In the middle yeah. of that, they go to Monterey. Is it Monterey they go to? some The jazz to, festival or something. And or then, they go to some wine Festival. yeah and there's this huge like montage in the movie where it's like there's a, i forget what the song is but it's like very it feels very out of place Even in the context writer has yeah. a moment
0: like that in the in the cemetery
1: and it's yeah where they're tripping out on yeah. in, in the new orleans cemetery it's like
0: cut out of it and just enjoy yeah and go balls <laughs> crazy <laughs> <Docile.
1: with> <laughs> <laughs> naked running around the end they're like they fla- they're having flashes and visuals but in this movie it's like this to me doesn't feel dated because of that scene where it's setting up you know the relationship of them, and you know, and then just having a night out on a Friday night. It you certainly
0: know. doesn't seem as dated as it could.
1: Yeah, that's what. Like, I, that's this my point. movie
0: could have been made ten years later. Yeah, and I wouldn't have known the difference. And if I, you were like, this movie was made in nineteen seventy eight, I'd been like, All oh right. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, aside from the cars and some of the procedural stuff. You know, it may be seeing an ambulance that's, you know, older in the movie than it should be. Like, you know, a lot of the the, the wardrobe, certainly all that, is very contemporary. You know, nowadays, uh, as we can talk about, like, his outfit in this movie, people still wear. You know, and it's kind of you know, it becomes always I'd a wear legend. It if i could
0: pull it off. Yeah, I would too. I don't know why you don't wear it. I, you know,
1: <laughs> I was saying that to myself, you know, when I was, but I really got to start, you know, uh, putting money towards my obsessions <laughs> and uh, start buying things like that and wearing stuff like that. But it's like, you know, the outfits um, in this movie and there's a great website that uh, I've just dist- uh, stumbled on that I'm absolutely in love with and it's called, um, the website is called B A uh, M F style, so it's badass motherfucker style, and it's uh, B A M F Style.com. And every week they profile a new look, and they do everything. They so they do a lot of McQueen, a lot of Eastwood, mm-hmm. but they'll do Cary Grant from like you know The Catch a Thief, or they'll do Jimmy Stewart from. And it, it's a guy who is not a fashion. He says he's not a fashion. He's just interested in the style. But they break down. Look what he's wearing in the in the you know the, the three button collar, and it's like for. Dudes like us who like love detail and wanna, and then they'll say like how to wear it, and they'll show you how to get this stuff. You yeah, know, yeah. so I discovered it researching this movie, and they talk about everything you know, the different outfits in Bullet, and it's it's fascinating. But it's the, the movie just has a lot of interesting things going on in it, and um, for for the for from a pacing standpoint, one of the arguments that people say about the movie is the story is very convoluted. And uh, if you're not paying attention, or sometimes you'll h- say like "best car chasing in history," but the movie itself is blah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I've always kind of felt like you know, yeah, it is a convoluted story, and um, I can, yeah,
0: I can see
1: people th- that, having problems. That point of view, yeah, but it doesn't bother
0: well, me. Well, yeah, in this past, it's, th- it's not spoon fed to you, and there's things about it that like I we can talk about that like I don't know. What, it, what the
1: implication is yeah, or what's what, it's ambiguous? what's certain... No, yeah.
0: is, you know, something very specific that... Uh, and
1: I've seen this movie, I don't know
0: how many, like, a bunch of times.
1: Yeah. But uh, that doesn't... It doesn't bother me about well, it. Well, on this past know? viewing, uh, maybe it's because of all the darn research. I probably, since I, I'm a huge Steve McQueen fan, I probably did the most research that I ever needed to do, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. doing this. And uh, I didn't find it as... Like, you know, I hadn't seen the movie. You know, when you get married, you know, you stop watching all the stuff you loved. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you kind of... Well, no time for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Have to, you have a you have a, life. a democracy involved. Yeah, so you so I hadn't seen this movie in probably over 10 years, 11 years, you know, and I used to watch the shit out of it. So coming back, kind of a fresh mind, you know, uh, a nice Blu-ray of it. It's it's interesting to see, like, to, to, to revisit it and feel the pacing. And a lot of the problems people had, I didn't have. But yeah. that could be because I'm coming f- from a... Uh, you know, I favor it or I like it. So, like, sure. you know, that kind of a point of view. <laughs> uh, before we get into kind of more of that stuff, do you remember when was the first time you saw it? Oh, geez. I think it probably was in high school. And then um, post-college, really, I think. I've o- I'd always been a Steve McQueen and Eastwood fan, but more Eastwood. And then I think it was working at that video store uh, that I worked at uh, my junior, senior year of college and afterward. Uh, where I was just able to sit around and put movies in and watch in the background. We had uh, a bunch of Steve McQueen's movies, so I was just putting stuff in, and I really fell in love with this movie. And this movie, at the time, uh, ended up turning into something that I'll talk about at the end of the podcast, because I'm going to make a big announcement um, about what's happening with me that I've been kind of trying to tease in the past other uh, podcasts. But um, it was kind of the emphasis that got me going, where I, I became fascinated with the idea of... I've always loved Dirty Harry, probably since middle school, this movie, I found a little later, and then I really took it seriously probably after college, and I love the idea of the... the I'm going off on a tangent, which you just originally asked me, but it's like they, they... To me, they inhabit the same world. It's Warner Brothers, so it has a particular style of look. Uh, it shares the same soundtrack, Lalo Schifrin. It's uh, set in the same locale, San Francisco. It's 68 to 71, and between that, within our world, There is so much going on, civil rights and all that kind of stuff from Vietnam from 68 to 71. So I became fascinated with the idea of like a kind of progressive cop like Frank Bullitt is, Steve McQueen, and what would take him to end up on his arc to become the grizzled, dirty, hairy, you know, Callahan where, you know, he's just at the end of the movie throwing his badge away Mm -hmm. and he's fed up with the system, you know, and that for some reason became just like this, uh, this, this inkling in the back of my head that i I find i became fascinated with and i started toying with but for me i guess it was probably like maybe junior senior year of college watching it getting it and then then just you know starting to really have time to sit and watch it and you know if i'm if i'm at the video store say and i'm ringing somebody out and i look back up and then i'm able to watch something from a different point of view and like oh you know and and, then pick up the subtlety and then i think after college reading a bio on McQueen was the first thing to jumpstart me into reading and now like I read uh, ferociously I can't retain any of it but I try to read as much as I can because I never was a reader growing up per se yeah I read comic books but not novels Mm -hmm. and now I'm trying to make up for all the stuff I didn't you know for that 15 years I wasn't doing what I should have been doing work (laughs) and stuff so I try to go back and read stuff we were supposed to read at school and all that so that kind of kickstarted that, and I just became fascinated with the story of McQueen, and then this, which you could probably say is his most famous movie. I guess, I guess, you know?
0: yeah. For you know me, for me, I, I'd never been an Eastwood fan. Yeah. Not even. I remember there was like a big Eastwood fest on some channel, T- my,
1: TBS, and my
0: brother was like, "Oh, you know, I got the Eastwood fest." I was like, "I don't like Eastwood." He's like, "How can you not like Eastwood?" I'm like, "I don't know. I like some of Eastwood's movies. Yeah. I like some of his his movies very much. Yeah, but I just never was a fan. Like I would never, in a million years, go see something because because Steve because Eastwood was involved, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's even just as an actor. Don't even get me started on him as a filmmaker. Yeah, but Uh, You know, but with that said, there are Eastwood movies that I like very, very much. Uh, But for some reason, I don't know what prompted it, but when I was like 15 or 16, I got on this big McQueen kick. Yeah. And I just started renting, like, all all of his movies. I don't know if my mom had something to do with it. I mean, I know that...
1: She loves love, love with a proper stranger. Yeah, she loves that, that movie. Tell me how I know that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, which is McQueen and, and Natalie Wood, and yeah. it's probably still because of that. Still, probably one of my favorite uh, McQueen movies. Oh, it's a great movie. Yeah, um, maybe it was that that kind of started it. But I just rented, you know, uh, you know this, and I got. I was very into The Great Escape for a long time, and uh, you know, the one with him and Sinatra.
1: Oh, never so few.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a, just a bunch of them that I just I got very into, and I started renting them. I got I, and I and it was uh, I don't necessarily know if it was a phase. or not. Yeah, uh, I, I there are very few Magnificent Seven. Yeah, uh, there are. F- I only ever went back and revisited a handful, like this, like Bullet and uh, The Great Escape and Magnificent Seven, like the bigger. Kind of spectacle ones
1: um, to get away. We did the we did the Tower Inferno, Towering Inferno on here, which was the,
0: that one. Was, somehow it's the by me. I don't think I had seen that before. We
1: oh yeah, we did it on the show. But that also has Robert Vaughn in it and Don Gordon from this. Yeah, so San Francisco too.
0: <laughs> yeah, so for, I don't know. In some weird way, other than say you know like Stallone or maybe Van Dan at the time, this was like my first like movie star. Kick, you yeah. know, where I, I went and I just kind of got way into somebody uh, for for a short time. Uh, re- re- revisited all their movies. Uh, never, you know, the thing with for me with McQueen is like the more I find out about him you know if you watch documentary or uh, i never read the book that you read but the more i find out about him like i just like man he was probably a real asshole yeah 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 he's got a <laughs> so, lot going on we can so, talk a little so about it for his, me it's like i try not to to learn too much yeah because he just sounds like he was a total baby and an asshole in a lot of in a lot of ways yeah. and of course you're hearing it from from you know you know it's all some of it's hearsay but you're hearing it from people that knew him and it's like huh yeah and then it's because they're they're all talking I'm like oh oh steve yeah and to me he's like that just sounds like a real dick move
1: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> you know he hit his wife that's weird yeah. uh and stuff like that and like uh just you know disappearing on a film set for like two weeks just because like he felt like his character wasn't getting the kind of attention this seems like a it seems like a very weird uh he clearly had a lot of issues that when you find out more about him with his family and yeah. his upbringing and stuff that I think doesn't necessarily warrant that kind of behavior but you can understand yeah. where that kind of behavior might have yeah. been coming from. You can touch on a little, bit, a little bit. But yeah. But th- this movie was big when I, when I saw it. Like I said when I was like 15, 16. This was uh, it was a real eye opener in, in some ways. Uh, I'm not sure I had ever seen a movie like this movie before. Uh, I had seen it I think for me what's interesting about it watching it now because maybe when I was 15 16 I couldn't have maybe uh, verbalized or or put my finger on what was so different about it but watching it now this documentary stuff that we had kind of we've already kind of brought up in, in a way it's it takes place in more than a day so it's not necessarily like a day in a life of a detective but it is kind of a slice of life kind of movie, like we're just we're it's it really is feels almost real, yeah, it's a like s- a. Fr- I
1: I think it starts on a Friday and it ends on a Sunday, and it's just a, over the like a long weekend it's yeah, like then, just like a weekend for this guy, and, and then and you'd, like you said, you don't really get any kind of serious resolution of you know the bad guy getting the good guy or the kid you know of you know the the immediate story is resolved, yeah but then it, you're kind of left to be like like almost like a snapshot of life like at the end of the credits roll like on a on a reality show that's the end of it and yeah. these people are obviously going to live on and do other things but
0: and the fact that it doesn't necessarily adhere to a typical dramatic structure of like a three act story i mean i think all that stuff is there it's yeah. just not as overt as i think we're used to seeing it as a as a moviegoer the fact that like I said, like, there's no... Like, you killed my brother! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm avenging somebody's death. I mean, in a way, you could argue that he's kind of... He takes it more personally because someone on his team did get injured in the beginning of the movie, and and maybe that's why he's taking it so seriously. But for me, it, it's not that. It's like, this is his job. Yeah, He's, you know, he's a cop that wants to do the right thing. And... And I think like that's enough motivation for him to be... To me, that's even more
1: being a hero. Yeah. Or you a know, like
0: He's doing it out of duty, not out of a, some personal
1: vendetta. <laughs> yeah, and, and almost like a little pushback against that authority of the Robert Vaughn, you know, the, the elitism of that guy. Um,
0: yeah, but it's like, it really is... I think what I fear some people might find boring about it is what I find interesting and unique about it. Yeah. This idea of we're just... Following this guy Through this Through this case yeah. And how he's Handling it Very little action In inter- turn And you know ex- Except for the The chase The car The big car chase scene Which is iconic and Yeah And you know The
1: The uh, ending at the, the airport The ending
0: which So Like even he Yeah Obviously exactly. hey, it Yeah it's borrows so,
1: from And then there's a hospital There's a chase in the hospital But all but of this, aside from that It's very But it's yeah. like out in these locations yeah. in the real world
0: you know there's a scene where he goes back to the scene of the crime and you know the, the uh, hotel
1: room I hotel love room. it and
0: he's just like looking around and it's like he's just being a cop he's just being a cop he's, yeah. putting th- he's trying to put things and together that's a,
1: that's a scene where they're like Peter Yates the director told him you know this is what you're going to accomplish but we set the room up so you don't know and they go in and then they just tape him Tape him. They film him. <laughs> you know, just reacting. I'm to I'm not stuff, sure a f- you know?
0: scene like that would make it into a movie today. Not in that way, anyway. Yeah. It would be more of like you'd really maybe, something. Maybe somebody else would be there, yeah. and there was somebody. They some, would dialogue be, there business, would be some dialogue or business. Some dialogue that would be explaining what's going on. Yeah. But it's really just like him looking at things.
1: Yeah, but I mean, but then. The the but it's important yeah but and then the genius for me of him as an actor is he never really called himself an actor he called himself a reactor so he's one of these guys that certainly knew his limitations and he would say like you know my acting my range may not be deep but I'm wide yeah so he would know exactly you know he's like again like kind of like the Eastwood where it's like you know I don't need to say a paragraph of dialogue here I can convey that with a look so you know and, and he with him it was always less is more and he, and he there was a uh, a Hitchcock quote that he loved that um hitch used to say something like uh what the hell was it he'd say that true drama involved doing nothing well you know and he loved that idea so he so for him a lot of this you know like the idea in that room of him like kind of the shock of what happened you know like like there's a lot of the scenes play in a certain way where it's at least for me i can i can kind of glean from it where it's like just okay he's in the this for this example he's in the hotel room and he's looking at, like, you know, the, the the crime scene, what happened and all that. But then also he's internalizing that, like, you know, his friend was shot. and Or, like you said, his partner's shot. And this is best up. And, you know, and you, you get a little more, like, later on. Uh, a sequence where I love at the end is when he gets onto the airplane. You know, and his just his eye movement of looking at everybody. He's trying to find. That's another situation where they're like, um, he didn't know what the guy. He doesn't really know what the guy looks like. Uh... That they're looking for at the end of this movie, but he's got to find someone who reacts a certain way. Yeah. So I love the idea of him. Like his eyes are bound. He's taking so much in. You know what I mean? And and the the, the stuff that's going on, and he. I mean, you set up that life where he is the, the the character is you know he has a girlfriend he has a life you know he has a a, a, a a social life he's not the loner who just you know puts a gun in his mouth like Mel Gibson and you know <laughs> yeah, yeah or Dirty Harry who just goes home and drinks a couple beers and goes to sleep like he had you know so it's it's interesting that you see the the finesse but then by the end of the movie it's you know it, it again the, the the quote unquote job is doing this to him um, and he the whole movie just played out in such a way like we say the realism like uh, Peter Yates who, who was brought on because um, he did a movie called Robbery uh, which I think was his take on the um, Great Train Robbery and I think that was out in 67 or so McQueen saw that love there's a car chase in it so he brought uh, Yates on and this was Yates' first American movie This so was his first American
0: movie uh, in terms of uh he was a british like Dion said he was a British director. I think he's actually from Scotland.
1: Yeah. But uh He had a couple episodes of The Saint. But f- you know,
0: other you know, I me mean, I like to go back and then like to put in context yeah. of like what else they've done. So he went on and did another film that Dion and I love a lot, the Friends of Eddie
1: uh, Coyle. Which I mistakenly refer to as the Friends of Peter Boyle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he does a movie I don't know if you've ever seen it. I like it a lot with Barbara Streisand called uh, For Pete's Sake mm-hmm. in 74 he did uh, Mother Jugs and Speed yeah The Deep which is a classic yeah uh, uh, Breaking Away which I just watched again recently not for this just for chance and then I think the biggest probably sleepover movie he's done was Crawl yeah in Crawl uh, in, in 1983 uh, K-R-U-L-L K-R-U-L-L yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah uh, I love, you know, it's it's interesting when you, I find it interesting when you go back and you start looking at what else they did and you start putting that in context because he's a really interesting and talented director. There's so many of these kinds of directors that never get the kind of name recognition of someone like Hitchcock or, uh, you know, know, the younger people like Spielberg and Scorsese or even... um, like a Michael Mann,
1: or, or yeah,
0: or even like people more of his contemporaries, uh,
1: like a Castlevetti's or a uh, uh, Sam Peckinpah. Peckinpah, or and Paul, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the name I was looking. Before. I mean, even uh, you know, like a movie like Friends of Eddie Coyle, which I remember seeing maybe in high school on uh, Turner Classic Movies, with Robert Osborne introing and talking about how it shot all on location in Boston. Mitchum learned a very good hard. Boston accent, like a like a certain community accent, and then that movie you can't see, like it's not available on video or DVD at the time. It was probably out of print on video, it hadn't been released on DVD, and that's another thing with Point Blank, which we brought up I think last week on last week's podcast, the Lee Marvin movie, which also um, has something to do with. I don't, maybe Lalo did the soundtrack to that, but that's another movie that you know was nowhere to be found, even though they did a remake, the Payback movie with uh, Mel Gibson, until I was on the list in the early odds to uh, get that movie released on DVD they had like a, a petition list and I put my name on it you know for turner classic movies to get the thing released on DVD cuz yeah. I'd see Don Turner but like so a lot of these movies you wouldn't like bullet is iconic and it probably was available in every format but a lot of these people's other catalogs sure you know may not be so then you know they're they're well known for maybe one movie but you can't see the rest or you know yeah, even Don yeah. Siegel you know like Charlie Verrick I don't think it's still maybe in blue right now but it, you know I try to find that on wide the widescreen you <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. so it's hard to find you know and, and Yates had done a lot of TV commercials and TV work and he, he came over here this was his first American film and it works on a lot of levels because uh, he comes over here and he doesn't have kind of like the same prejudices say um you know, say uh, people who were from the United States have, and I mean by that is like not like against racially, but it's just like the idea of you can't do it this way. No one's ever done it this way, so it's yeah. it's one of those ideas of like the fish out of water. Uh, it's one
0: of the reasons why I think I feel like a lot of people sh- would shoot in San Francisco, which became I think more common after this. Yeah, this was San Francisco
1: was hardly used, but yeah. yeah.
0: But at this time, they wanted to shoot in San Francisco it was close enough to L.A. But it was far enough from L.A. that they could would not be bothered yeah, and <laughs> and by the
1: studios and stuff. And the, there was a big gripe with that at the time because the studios... He, McQueen had a six-picture deal with Warner, and this was going to be the first one. And his he had made a company called Solar, which was off of Solar Drive, where he used to live at the time. And this was going to be the first movie they did. And they went for a budget for his price. And Warner was like, no, we want for, for what you want and what you want to do and bringing this guy Peter Yates in... We want you to shoot it all in the studio backlots, and uh, that, that that's the end of it. And at the time, really the only thing that they were using the backlots for was like the episodic television. And he was like, no, the whole reason is we want to shoot it on location to have it look different. And, yeah. have it, you know, um, and he got into a fight with them, and he went back and he told his agent, uh, so our production company is going to produce this whole thing on its own. Uh, we're going to take it out of Warner Brothers. We're only going to use Warner to distribute it, and we're going to cancel our six-picture war." deal with Warner and it's a whole other thing about his ego about you know being messed with with authoritarian figures but also this came at a big time where he had made this deal with Jack Warner the head of Warner Brothers but then between 67 and 66 or 67 or 68 Warner sells his stake in Warner Brothers the movie that the the, the company that he made in the early odds 19 odds and that he had his with his brothers to a Canadian company seven artists and that's why in the beginning it says a Warner Seven Artists film. Yeah. So when, he, when McQueen came back to the table to try to fi- do the fine points of this, it wasn't Jack Warner he was dealing with anymore. He was dealing with another, you know, this was the proper end of the studio system. Yeah. So he had to fight to get this shot on location, and the entire thing is shot on location. There's no, um, they use no sets for it and all that. And that's kind of unheard of at the time for the most part. Uh, and the, also the big thing here is that um, Peter Gates wanted to use the Aeroflex cameras, which were, which were... Uh, portable, smaller than the conventional ones Warners had these big cameras Mitchells that at the time they'd bought Like for Hitchcock in the 50s and stuff And they were still using them and a lot of the interiors On this movie were shot on those Like in the hospitals but you can't get A bigger camera in kind of these places Like in a car that they wanted to Yeah. So they got Warner to buy A couple of these Aeroflexes which I think You and I ended up using in we college We used 16
0: millimeter versions of them Yeah, yeah you know and that's, they were probably the
1: same models that they were using back then because we were using what 30 year 20 year old equipment <laughs> yeah, the time. yeah you know because it was a it was a struggling film the day at the
0: driver's was shot on an well, area, i believe
1: yeah and that's your that's your junior film right there mm-hmm. um a student film and so that was a big thing to to, to get these kind of these cameras that are smaller portable and yates was doing unconventional things like the hotel location that you just we just spoke of it's right next to the freeway and the people are like you can't use this as a location because the sound people aren't going to be able to distinguish anything. And he's like, no, we'll figure it out. Yeah, it's a great location. Or shooting in the elevator uh, in that hotel to lead into the hallway to get to the hotel room. And you know, outside of the United States at the time, you know, uh, the inter ne- the interstate system wasn't as big in the in the in the rest of the world. So america had these big highways and stuff like that so it, it, it is another level of symbolism in this movie where they are surrounded by highways and you know where the hotel outside the window is a big lane highway and at the end of the movie you know they're they're going on a highway and different kind of things so peter yates did a lot of stuff that you think other directors at the yeah. time wouldn't try to do because they wouldn't think of doing uh
0: other people involved
1: uh you got philip d'antoni yeah f- philip d'antoni is a guy who lives up the block from our guy Randy Jurgensen in, in Westchester, and I met his son because uh, Randy the Phil Philip and Tony D and Tony Jr. Uh, they did a movie together, and uh, I forget he he also had a big career, the producer, doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, it was well, a he driving pr- force? He produced
0: on The French Connection. Yeah, and then he produced and directed Seven Ups, both films that Deanna and I yeah. l- like a lot. And also, Sharon,
1: uh, we'll talk about a little bit. Bill Hickman, who's in this movie, who's in both those movies, The Driver. Uh,
0: of course, the music by Lalo Schifrin, uh, who Lalo was a old favorite of Dion's. My, I think we probably, one of our probably bonding artists when we got to know each other was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was Lalo. It was Lalo.
1: In 2002, Blake and I went to the Blue Note to see him perform, and I brought with me, that had just uh, been released on uh, a soundtrack of this on CD Bullet. So I brought that with me to sign, and I got him to sign it, but then I was standing next, waiting to talk to him, and some guy was. I don't know who he was, but this guy was like talking about a movie he wanted to make with him and do sound, you know. And you could tell this guy was just like a nut. <laughs> he had like he had like a clipboard or like a like a like a trapper keeper was going to yeah, show. Yeah. Him. And Lala was kind enough to like obliged the guy so we were waiting in the intermission before lalo went on with his band and i walked over got a signature was waiting to talk to him tell him how i love the dirty Harry soundtrack i love the kelly's hero soundtrack i love the bullet soundtrack i loved all these soundtracks he's done and this guy talked his ear off for like five minutes about some did you get did you <laughs> get my mail you know so i was like ah but we saw him live and that was great yeah that um so awesome.
0: i think ray brown was on bass yeah that was the
1: night that i couldn't we blake and i we, we got a table we were right next to the stage and we were in a position where my i was drinking and my drink was in ray brown's field of view so every time he was soloing you would see his face He was like you know, solo <laughs> and he was looking at my glass so i didn't want to grab my glass and Frakes like break his concentration yeah. so the th- great night
0: now the other i think <clears throat> the mo- probably the most amazing person involved and i don't know if we didn't do this when we did tombstone i am submitting uh william a fraker's Oh, name Jesus. for
1: the, the cinematographer for of this induction
0: movie. into the Sleepover movie Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, uh, he he uncredited worked on a film that has a special place close to my heart, Incubus with yeah. William, uh, with William Shatter, which was the first and maybe the only movie ever shot in Esperanto. Yeah, Esperanto. <laughs> but he shot uh, Rosemary's Baby, Gator, yeah, with Burt Reynolds, Exorcist, Gator 2, yeah, The Heretic, which people shit on. But one thing I don't think you can shit on about. Uh, Exorcist Two is the way it looks. I think yeah. that movie is stunning. That's, stunning the, that's the Richard aid. Burton one, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: Nineteen Forty One. Yeah, with, Spielberg. With Spielberg, Sharky's Machine. You have Burt Reynolds, old Burt. Now we're going to get even to, into some more sleepover territory. This is, we're we getting into the eighties, right? <laughs> Four Games. Yep. Space Camp. The Freshman with well, Matthew Broderick and Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando. Memoirs of an Invisible Man by John, John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Honeymoon in Vegas. Yep. Tombstone, wow! Street Vi- Fighter with Van Dam, wow! Uh, that might be Raul
1: Julia's last movie,
0: right? <laughs> yep. Uh, that crazy Marlon Brando, Island of Doctor Moreau by Frank. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, Vegas Vacation in okay, nineteen ninety-seven. Yeah. So he's got quite the impressive uh, d- resume as a director of photography and Yeah, it's and, and, and
1: the I think he's to be praised in this movie Bullet for for some of the stuff he's doing. I mean, they have McQueen and in Peter Yates had visions of what they want stuff to be done but if it wasn't for his cinemat his his idea of using lenses and like looks I mean I I don't know if we can understate or overstate how much of just of a beast this must have been shooting on location in the 60s with also um Blake can probably talk better than I can technically about this but there wasn't the advent of fast film yet yeah so the problem with that means in the old days you need a lot of light to get a good exposure on your film, so if they're shooting on location with these little cameras now, uh, it's really hard to set up. You know, you could. It's in a sound stage, you can control everything, you can get what you want. But to do it on location, bring heavy lights. You know, and this is something they're doing where they're shooting all on location. You know, all kinds of crazy angles and shots, and being able to get an exposure at the end at the airport at night outside. You know, you can barely see McQueen. It's it's just yeah. amazing. The, um, the fact that you can Marvel. see
0: him as well as you can,
1: yeah, is kind of sure. And they pushed it; they pushed it a couple stops. I remember yeah, Yates so it gets talking a about grainier, yeah, which,
0: which is pushing as, I believe, to my recollection of our film school days, is that you process it when in you're a developing way, it. You, yeah, you kind of leave it in the in the in the in the liquid in the a little longer, than deal, you a little should. bit longer, so that it it kind of, gets even a little bit lighter. Yeah. But then. The picture quality gets a little bit more deteriorated with with uh, with grain, and, and, and you film d- you artifacts. start seeing like
1: almost spots on the film. It's also like I guess the idea when you see a double exposure when they go in, not double exposure with a um, uh, when you go in for like a what do yeah you call the it? optical optical printing. Yeah, you know, you when they, when you zoom in on something, you could see as you get in that the grain of the film gets more known, and uh, so I, he's doing amazing things on this. You know, it's just trifecta of. You know, like I said, a lot of people just credit this movie with the car chase, which is fabulous, but I'm just, i digging everything else on the peripheral of this movie, what's going on and all that. Uh, Jacqueline Bissett's also in this movie. She's Mm -hmm. 23, fresh out of England. They bring her over. Uh, Robert Duvall's also in this movie. He was supposed to have a bigger part, and he hung out, and he was getting paid, and they shaved his part really down, and, and years later, Peter Yates really felt bad, so he told saw Deval and an event and he said like i have to apologize for wasting you kind of on bullet and he's like wasting me he's like i love the experience and that's when i learned how to play tennis up in san francisco <laughs> i play tennis waiting you know for you, to, you guys to use me um and also another guy in the movie which is funny is vic taback at the beginning of this movie he plays peter he plays ross's brother peter ross he's the guy that lets the other guy go he's the guy from alice's restaurant
0: Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. Vic
1: Tayback Mm -hmm. had a big career in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, he was in a
0: lot of TV. Like he's in an episode of. He always plays the kind of a heavy. Like he plays like a mob guy in an episode of, like The Monkees. Yeah, you know (laughs) he's like like a guy. You know,
1: like he just has like a wife beater shirt on, like in the back. You know, a shorter cooking. Of course, uh,
0: Simon Oakland, who plays Captain Sam Bennett, was in. Not you know I always joke around. You know he went from being a psychiatrist in. Psycho at the end of Psycho Yeah, he's, he's ex- the guy that explains, explains the everything. whole yeah so fabulous he gave up his practice became a police officer
1: yeah no yeah. he gave up his practice went into the Navy and then uh, he's in the sand pebbles with Stephen Queen <laughs> and they, they there's a scene where they box together and then Gets out of the navy, becomes a cop, and as then a captain. later
0: ends up leaving the, the force. force to become a in the in the going to the newspaper business. Yeah, because he's what the editor. Of he's <laughs>
1: he's Tony Vincenzo of, of the uh, what's the name of that the the, uh, the I, Night Stalker INS. Yeah, INS. Yeah, uh, the Night Stalker with um, Darren McGavin, which we
0: talked about briefly for Blues Brothers. Because
1: Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and the song at the beginning of the Blues Brothers cast was the cold check theme. And Simon Oakland's a guy who, um, you know, when they were trying to find people, you know, this is a, a movie where, at the time, McQueen's, you know, one of the biggest superstars in the world, so he's able to have yay or nay on everybody in the cast. And he had just worked with um, Simon Oakland in The Sand Pebbles, uh, a Robert Wise movie from like 66 or 67. Yeah. And uh, you needed to find a guy who could realistically look like he could be McQueen's superior. And here's a Simon Oakland who doesn't look like an actor. You know, he has this level of authority. Like, like you made the point on, maybe it was one of our horror movie podcasts, but or maybe you know, we were talking about Simon Oakland in our Night Stalker podcast, maybe, that yeah. how hard it is for him to have that, you know, three-page monologue at the end of Psycho. He's the guy that has to come in at the end of the, you know, when, when the lights come on and explain what the hell's going on with <laughs> Anthony Perkins, yeah. you know. And it's a great feat, and he's believable as a psychiatrist. It's very realistic, and it's just a testament of how, you know, good of an actor he is. And supposedly he's a very nice guy in real life, you know. So you need him. He He's in the cast as um, the of, of, of his immediate supervisor, the captain. Now the police commissioner is uh, Norman Fell. Who is Mr. R- uh, Rooker? M- Roper. Roper. Mr. Rooker. I feel like is, he Mr. Came up, from Fantasy Island. I feel like he came up recently on an episode, probably. Two. But we were talking about um, Don Knotts because oh, we were talking about Three's Company, something about, uh, and I think it might have been again the, Pl- the Blues Brothers cast. And you guys are talking about, you know, uh, oh, yeah. who you like better? Because <laughs> then didn't they have a spinoff series? Mr. Ropers, the, Ropers, the yeah. Ropers, and then they were replaced by Don Knotts as the. Uh, now, do you do you recall there is? <laughs> but your first time you ever saw Don F- Norman Phelps, <laughs> there's a
0: there's an actor in this movie that is in a previous
1: episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, and not Robert Vaughn from Towering Inferno. No, no not Stephen. Not, not
0: someone from Towering Inferno.
1: Um, and then uh, who else is? Uh, and then you have the other guy. You're not talking about the um, uh, George Stanford Brown, the African-American doctor. No. Okay. And then, uh, not Bill Hickman. Ed Peck.
0: Ed uh, Peck. As Westcott, who I guess is a re- the reporter in the hospital. I didn't know what his name was Oh, the we watched gu- the movie.
1: With the, with the pipe, and he yes. wants to get the picture.
0: He, when we were watching it, I was like, I was like that guy's... In- I was like, shh. <laughs> but he's in Willy Wonka. Who's he in Willy Wonka? He's in the scene where they're having like that big uh, montage of like the
1: all the different stuff going on and, and so the Wonka the, bars. The,
0: the, the wife's husband's been K- kidnapped. He's the, is he the
1: FBI agent? And then,
0: yeah. Can I, can I like have a the, minute? <laughs> they want a ransom, and uh, she's like, I'm think I didn't, That's one of my favorite yeah. scenes of because the girl I'll
1: give you a case of Wonka bars, <laughs> and she's like, she takes that beat, and starts thinking, "Mrs. Johnson, he's
0: the he's the FBI agent." That's and, the, and then what does she say? So she's like. Can I, can I have time to think it over? <laughs> it's great.
1: <laughs> she's so that I, I don't know who that actress is, but she's so good in that uh, And I think I at the think. time who it was, yeah. except your 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 Bar Wonka or your your Thingy Wonka bars. Uh, who else? I feel like there's more people we should talk about in this cast. Because well, exactly is like sad. I fell absolutely in love with in the deep. Yes, yeah, she's great in this, and she's also which is also Peter Yates' movie. Um, she's also Robert Duvall and Herb appear in that movie, The Detective same year I just said about Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. 1968 in New York and uh, while we're talking about the detective it's funny if you, if funny, if you read the trivia about the detective uh, whatever the f- series that, that's based on by the author I forget and his name is I think he's Detective uh, Leland they say the sequel to that was supposed to be where he goes he, his, in that movie Lee Remick is his wife and I think they end up divorcing in the movie um, the sequel was going to be that he goes visits his wife at a Texas... Uh, oil conglomerate's main offices and in the middle of it it gets taken over by German terrorists and he has to fight to get his wife out and it supposedly was the precursor to Die Hard which is interesting because when we did the Commando podcast people say the sequel to Commando was supposed to be, so I wonder if there's a if there's a connection between John Matrix and uh, Detective Leland the Sinatra because they say that since Sinatra owned the rights to that property, that when they came around to to getting ready to do Die Hard they, part of his contract was his first he had f- right of refusal to play th- in any kind of iteration so they had to offer Sinatra who was in his late 70s at the time John <laughs> yeah. McLean, <laughs> yeah, and he said no but so very odd trivia which Blake and I always talk about where you know could be or could not be true but you know because it's, you're reading it off second hand oh, off the internet there was also talk I recall when we did the Dirty Harry podcast
0: that Sinatra was somehow yeah he had
1: heard his, he'd heard his hand doing something and I forgot I read recently what more plausible it was but people were slagging him off that it was something like a sexual act or something but he couldn't he did something and he couldn't do and shoot the gun so and and there's even even promotional uh posters that they did before he was cast as him playing Dirty Harry that we included as an extra on that Dirty Harry uh, posting but that went through the mill that was John Wayne was offered that was this the movie? Uh, Paul Newman was offered I'm, that I mean we're t- <laughs> getting off on a tangent but was the
0: detective the movie there was a movie that he was supposed to do with Mia Farrow
1: Yes, that's it. And they
0: were married. And what happened was she was... over. she went long on on Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, and
1: then they... And then that
0: led to their divorce. Yeah, he
1: said, come and do this movie. Mia Farrow didn't know what to do. Talk to Robert Evans. And this is talked about in that movie, The Kid Stays in the Picture, the doc. And Robert Evans lays it down for, hey, do you want to be a star of your own? Because this movie is going to be huge, Rosemary's Baby, or do you want to just be Frank Sinatra's wife? So she ends up staying, doing the overrun of a couple months on Rosemary's Baby. He gets so mad, he ends up filing for divorce, and they quickly bring in Jacqueline Bissett to play the part that she was supposed to play. Because so, it's interesting because since in 68, Jacqueline Bisset then gets that haircut that Mia Farrow had, that small, yeah. very short, boyish kind of a haircut she has in it, looking very different than she looked on this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's that, exactly, this is the, de- 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 the Detective was the movie that that uh, was on. Yeah. But it's interesting that it is, they're both cop movies. You have two, you know, Robert Duval and Jacqueline Bisset. It's New York, this is San Francisco. Uh, I read the book for um, this N- movie. Now the book
0: takes place in Boston, right? No, that's the is another... That's a mis- it, is that misnomer? Yeah,
1: yeah I, I, in two or three different things I read about it says that it took place in Boston, and it's in New York. It's it's mute witness by uh, it's billed as Robert L Pike, but it, it, that's a um, a pseudonym for Robert Fish is his real name. The book came out in '63. I brought along with us uh, the 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 bullet version. Yeah, I brought along the novelization that when they re released. Um, you can take that out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> that's the old radio. It's a fire. <laughs> um, Let me just throw
0: another log on. Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> So dry. That is um, <laughs> when they re-released the movie in '68. It's you know McQueen's picture's on the cover, you know, but it's basically it's Mute Witness. And Mute Witness comes out in '63. Uh, the it takes place at the 52nd precinct in New York City. It's a guy's name. He's Lieutenant Clancy. And the interesting thing about the book um, is that you have the idea of he's got two. He's kind of he wears a hat. He's a little older, and um, he has two different partners: Stanton and uh, Kaprowski. And Chalmers, the Robert Vaughn character, hires him to be, to, to safeguard this witness over the weekend. There's a little more backstory with um, Captain Sam Wise, who's the Simon Oakland character, were growing up in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, Clancy, who is the bullet character, Lieutenant Clancy, and they grew up together, him and the captain, and the captain used to like uh, stick up for him in street fights and all that. They're really good friends. Now they're, they were both lieutenants and. Uh, Clancy, aka Bullet, should have gotten the promotion to captain, but because of another incident with the district attorney, the ADA, Chalmers, the Robert Vaughn character, the, his promotion was nixed, and Simon Oakland, aka Captain Wise, in the book gets the promotion. So they don't like each other, uh, Bullet, aka uh, Clancy, and Chalmers. In the movie, Chalmers is a councilman in san francisco in the book he's like i said he's an ada yeah. and he's kind of a more of a pushover in the book you get the uh, imagination he's kind of like a cocky like um young you know like overzealous kind of a uh, uh ada where in the movie i think vaughn brilliantly plays it a little more of a um he's a little more threatening and a little more serious and yeah. like you know he's m- more of a sinister asshole politician than in the book but uh same thing happens in the book where they're they're supposed to be um looking safeguarding a witness the witness gets shot they bring him to uh, the closest hospital there they while they bring him to the hospital he goes under surgery and the um doctor at the time uh dr uh willard uh you know tries to perform surgery on him and there's a big twist in the book which they leave out of the movie but it's it's kind of interesting where uh they safe. They put him in. They they have surgery. Puts him in a room. Cops, uh, you know, guarding the room. And then they haven't told Chalmers yet that the book that that he's been. Uh that what's happened or where he is the the the, the guy they're witness they're, they're they're bodyguarding and they go into the room and they find out he's been stabbed to death and they're like what the fuck so it's like suddenly he's been killed yeah. so they think it was the you know the the, the hitman trying to go after him you know and then it becomes this whole side chase of what happened and uh in the movie in the book you also have um this guy doc friedman who the, who's a pathologist who uh the bullet character asked to help him and he's kind of like a Bones from Star Trek kind of a character yeah. where he's like trying to be salty with him like you need to go to sleep you can't <laughs> you know you can't do this case your own you're gonna get fired and to make a long story short a lot of the same characters and the same things happen in the book there's no car chase of course but what ends up what ends up happening is you find out that Dr. Willard the uh, doctor at this private hospital once he finds out that the that the after surgery the witness died he stabs the guy post-mortem himself to throw Everybody off the tracks because he's worried that since this guy died on his watch, Chalmers will have his skin and he'll never have a uh, uh, a job in the in a hospital profession again. So he ends up stabbing him post mortem to, to to make it like oh the hitman did it you know like that yeah. and then it it becomes cleanly cleanly wrapped up. Um, they find out that you know that, that we'll have to talk about in this the, the plot here that the that they're guarding the wrong person and when Clancy the bullet character goes after. Uh, in the book, uh, the girlfriend of the guy that they're looking after, the false person, a lot of it takes place at the New Yorker Hotel. Yeah, that you and I have a big affinity for that. We've done a lot of things at it. We've gone and see stuff and events there. Which is where uh, Tesla died. Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was he thinking was like Elon Musk or
0: whatever. <laughs> Tesla was living in the New Yorker Hotel when he passed away.
1: Very sad. We love the New Yorker. It hasn't changed. It has that very beautiful art it's deco. It's now like oh, bought by somebody else. It's like uh, it's like the other thing. So now. now it's like condos or it's high rises. Now
0: it's like the New Yorker Hotel by
1: Oh Marriott. <laughs> yeah, you know, something like like that. you know they did that with the Waldorf Astoria. They closed it last year for the last time. It's no longer a hotel, and they're remodeling. It's going to become like uh, you know people can buy apartments in it, which is kind of sad because it has such a prestige. But anyway, so the book ties up where they find out you know that they're going to be on the run and it ends up that they're, they they uh, go to the docks and, it, and instead of an airport they, they throw them off at the docks and they get them. And the Vic Tabak character, the brother who we only see at the beginning in the movie, he has a bigger part in this because he's looking, where's my brother? You have my brother head to, to the to the bullet character. Yeah. It was very interesting. It, it, it's, a, it's a fast read. Uh, another thing, he doesn't carry a gun in the book which is kind of like another thing I like about this movie here. We can talk about the, his use of weapons in Bullet, the movie. And there is a the last thing about the book is there's this interesting like uh, motif about a clothesline because his police office view looks out on this little alleyway. In New York, you get those alleyways where like three feet away is another building and there's not much of a view at all, but there's this clothesline and, and through the whole book, he's looking at the clothes that are going out, trying to figure out who's putting them out and w- what kind of a person lives there. And at one point, he realized that he did see the clothesline empty, but when it when was that because he always sees clothes on it? And then at the end of the book, like the last page, it's Monday morning, and he sees there's no clothes in the clothesline. He realizes it was Monday. It's really weird. But <laughs> I enjoyed the end of it. So that's the book that I that I read, Mute Witness. Um, so Warner gets buys the book option a couple, and then and then it, and it's optioned a couple times in the, in the mid '60s. And Warner gets it with the idea of putting Spencer Tracy in the movie. But Spencer Tracy's getting old at this point because, as in the book, the, he's an older detective. He's, he's He wears a hat. He's probably like in his 50s. He's near yeah. the end of his, you know, he's he's kind of like maybe more of Simon Oakland's age in the movie. and But then, you know, Spencer Tracy's in declining health. He's very old at this point, too. You know, he ends up dying in 67. I forget uh, why he passes away. So uh, when they're looking for something to do at this time, you know, they, they end up, going and getting McQueen you know and and McQueen comes into it uh McQueen has an interesting background I think it is kind of important although you know it it might be a snooze fest for a second but I I I think we should take a couple minutes to talk about his background to try to come up to what you said about you know him being kind of a dick in real life or in you know and why he had that um do you know anything about his upbringing which is kind of I don't, know, I don't know if anyone really does or, you know, cares, but I think it, it's, it's kind of...
0: Well, I know that, you know, he's one of those circumstances where his dad took off, right, when he was born, yeah. basically. So he never really knew his dad. And then something happened, like his mom left him with his aunt and uncle or yeah. something to that effect. Very good. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then eventually she comes back, but then he gets put in some kind of...
1: Yeah, like a boy's home. Like a boy's home. Yeah. Um... He's born in 1930, uh, right outside of Indianapolis, and he's a dust belt baby, and we, or a rust belt. We talk about the rust belt all the time on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of things that <laughs> you're
0: not going to get in most other film podcasts. No, no. Extensive talks about the rust belt. The rust belt.
1: And the, and the, in, and the, the infrastructure. Um, <laughs> infrastructure. Robert Moses and the infrastructure. <laughs> The social and civil <laughs> plights of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and where a lot of the uh, American progress was. Um, so he's born in the Rust Belt, and right outside of uh, Indianapolis, and he and he ends up settling in this town called Slater. And his childhood basically is his mother, uh, Julian Crawford. She her name is Julian. She she has a little fling with this guy named Bill McQueen, and he. Uh, her mother's a 19 year old runaway drunk. She's bipolar. She's also a prostitute. She ends up having McQueen, and the father takes off. The father's an ex circus uh, performer, particularly like one of the, the, the fly planes, the biplanes of the era. And he's an alcoholic himself, and by um, his late 20s, he's having problems with his well, own he's liver. Like- the
0: guy he's from rocky like, uh, like tear yeah type he's guys.
1: he's uh he's doing that thing so growing up he doesn't know his father because his father's done his father ends up dying like like by his, by the time he's 30 because of the the severe alcoholism he's raised mcqueen's raised in the in the in the great depression he's illegitimate he's abused he's not wanted he doesn't grow up he doesn't trust anyone because his mom since she's a prostitute she ends up a lot of times when they're like living in a a one room place she kicks him out either to a party or to you know have sex with guys, so McQueen yeah. ends up waiting you know on on the stoop for her to finish or whatever, so he ends up having this this ego built up in his head he's teased as a, uh, as a bastard growing up and he begins to fight back he has troubles with cops, he has dyslexia himself, you know, he doesn't really trust anybody, he suffers from depression he has a very lonely childhood, his mother sends him away to go live with his aunt and uncle on his farm, um, I think in Missouri, there his friends are just like the barnyard animals, you know, he has a very solitary life, a very quiet person when he's growing up in the 30s, this is of the era of him being in the Rust Belt, it's all industry, so there's Trains everywhere, there's factories and all that kind of a thing. Like we know in The Rocketeer, this is the era of, um, you know, planes are all the rage, people doing like wing walking and uh, those races you see in The Rocketeer. So it's traveling circuses. So that's very alluring. So before long, he ends up becoming fascinated with anything that with wheels. So he loves motorcycles, loves cars, loves trains, loves planes. You know, learning about his dad as well. Like this is what his dad used to do, that kind of circus stuff like that. So his childhood wasn't really terrible but it was just tough and warped you know and this is where he learns his lifelong code and principles as a person people are assholes you know the only person's going to help you is yourself and that's kind of rewarded his self-reliance is learned he gets his view of women from his mother because his mother was never around and she was a prostitute so he'd have all these other people coming at home that were very abusive you know physically abusive towards him and he has a, When he's little he has a disease that Messes up his left ear, he has hearing loss in his left ear So through his whole life he's deaf in his left ear And that's why he has that look he leans the people and has a little squint and yeah. that became like his tough guy kind of persona but it's just him just trying to hear somebody talk But well, that lends itself to that kind of idea. And then so growing up he ends up petty crime he's, he's stealing hubcaps welfare fraud his his aunt and uncle eventually send him to the boys the Junior Boys Republic in Chino, California where he which is a reform school where he ends up like having some sort of semblance of a life yeah. and like learning how to like you know uh, make your bed do stuff like that. There's this very sad story where like one afternoon on a Friday, like his mother was supposed to come and get him to, to have the weekend with him. So he sat outside on the stoop all day and it was evident that his mom wasn't going to come. So he sat out there all day until like 11 o'clock at night and then like he broke into tears. And Growing up, he ends up having odd jobs, merchant marines, taxi driver, oil fields. He was a tall boy in brothels. He was a logger. He was a fireman. He was a lumberjack. He was in the circus. He sold uh, pen and paper sets in a medicine show. He was a prize fighter. Uh, he eventually ends up getting into the marines. And in the marines, he does very well, but he has this problem with authority figures. You know, he, he doesn't like being told what to do. And uh, this is his first uh, exposure in the merchant Marines to asbestos there's an, an incident where uh, he did something wrong and as a um, a punishment, he was told he had to go down on the bottom of a ship and stripping out the asbestos in ships and that 's back in the day when you didn 't have any kind of uh, you know kind of equipment on or whatever to 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 yeah. protect yourself so the shit 's all in the air as well as he was a racer and a and uh motorcycling so like a lot of the the equipment you'd wear for like safety was asbestos lined and stuff like that. And, and when you take bikes apart and motorcycles, like a lot of the, the innards protection, that's all asbestos. So he was, you know, dealing with asbestos all the darn time so when he's in the regular marines he 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 gets i think to like a lieutenant but he's bumped down in a court martial private and there's an incident like in a winter uh canadian lake where they're doing drills uh in zero water where they where a boat capsizes and a bunch of people are about to drown he leaps into action saves everybody's life so by the 50s he gets to new york he becomes this ladies man even before he's famous where he's like he's known for like the the amount of fellatio or or sex he has he's he has a <laughs> yeah. lot of you know girlfriends and all that kind of a thing and in the 50s a, a girlfriend asks him like you know would you why don't you try acting and it, that was his dilemma it's like should i act or should i lay floor tile for like 350 an hour but he he what he said no there's a lot of chicks and he didn't use that word but he's like there's a lot yeah. of girls in acting so i'll go you know into acting and he ends up becoming like that torn shirt generation of like Marlon Brando and like those James Dean those kind of guys but he has this huge resentment doing all that and um, he ends up uh, getting bit parts in uh, movies like you know gets, somebody up there likes me the
0: actor's studio right yeah he, Which he is here in
1: New York he auditions for Straussburg and he's one out of the five people that are picked for that year out of 2000 uh, entries he ends up doing stuff like there's uh, the Westinghouse Studio One that we like uh, The Defenders with William Shatner, uh, Ralph Bellamy that he's mm-hmm. in. He does Someone Up There Likes Smith with Paul Newman, and he ends up getting the show Wanted Dead or Alive, which is a uh, Western show, but it was an unconventional Western show in the in the late 50s because it was about a bounty hunter. So it was the first time you had a show where it wasn't like a sheriff or, a, you yeah. know, he was kind of a guy of a shady, you know, he he would sometimes do, you know, I mean, he had principles like the, classical private detective of right and wrong but it was, wasn't a clear like black and white yeah. you know and it was very popular at the time and then he ends up he gets the breakthrough rule in the Magnificent Seven which he only really has seven lines but the lines are so iconic like we do on Lead My Friend and like you know I never wrote shotgun on a, uh, on a hearse before like he becomes, you know, the biggest thing since sliced bread. That's his breakout role. He does Hells for Heroes, which is a great Don Siegel movie, war movie, which is like a forerunner to like a Platoon or Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket. It's Stanley Kubrick's favorite war film. JFK watched it like 20 times. Uh, he ends up getting then the Great Escape. And when he does that jump, which wasn't him in the Great Escape, that solidifies him as the mega, mega star, the action man. But then soon after that, he ends up... He b- By doing that role he becomes the the first international action star he proceeds eastwood by about three years and he's the the he's what the early 60s what the world thinks of america he's like the living marlboro man that kind of a thing very secret very good looking very quiet you know whatever you know and he, he becomes this in the in the sense of like a uh like a sean connery a humphrey bogart a james cagney where it's they they be, the 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 actor becomes the the uh the persona of legend you know where it's it's the person not he's not he's not a method actor where like he'll become like a de Niro and go you know become somebody else in the part it's him you know like you see yeah. these like Eastwood or John Wayne that kind of a persona He starts doing interesting things, though, in the 60s because what he does, he does love with a proper stranger. And that movie is so huge that endears himself to that and then the Thomas Crown Affair endear himself to, like, women. You know, and he becomes this crossover, like, uh, matinee idol. That, you know, men want to be him and women want to have sex with him, to use a a good term. Also, at this time, you know, he's doing his own he's on the side he's racing he's a race car driver he does motorcycle racing he was selected in 1966 as part of this u.s team of six international six-day motorcycle race in east germany why he ascends in the middle 60s i think is also interesting because it's when like we were saying the traditional star system is kind of dying he people the public are looking for like characters quote unquote as actors and this is one of the reasons why he kind of you know becomes really known and then you know he does uh The Cincinnati Kid, which is another Norman Jewison movie, which uh, Lalo does the soundtrack for, which is a card game movie, which is very big. A lot of people nowadays love Rounders, that card game, but this is another huge card game movie. And he becomes very selective in his career, and then he does Sam Pebbles, which is another huge international, and a movie like that gets him, like, people start knowing him in Thailand, and, like, India, and Japan. Like, it's very crazy where he can't go anywhere in the world without people recognizing him. And also... It should be noted his philanthropic endeavors where he's the kind of guy he was he had such a connection with children or or like the blue collar work working people there's examples where he would go to like neighborhoods and he'd find out that you know uh, they didn't have any any kind of play background so he would go and he'd buy them like a like a school or he'd buy them like a playground and people would never even know this like when he was yeah. in thailand shooting the sand pebbles he was walking along, like he'd, he'd go off on his own sometimes, and he found this Catholic monastery for women, or girls, that was falling apart. Like one wall was down, and you know, and he, he went there, was talking to them, and he got teary-eyed talking. and He was trying to give them, and it, he understood the importance of growing up as you know, as, as an orphan kind of. So he ended up supporting that monastery for the rest of his life, and no one knew that until after he died. So yeah, he would yeah. do a lot of stuff on the well, side. it's
0: Funny because I, I, on a personal level, he was kind of known to be really cheap.
1: Yeah, like a Jack Benny kind of like and he would. Like, a like if he and went dime. out on
0: dates and stuff, the girls would have to pay. Yeah, uh, but yet, like in his private life, when people didn't know about it, like he was very generous yeah. with his money in the in a in like charity. And yeah, stuff and like it's that.
1: and it becomes this weird thing where like you know, do you like him? Do you hang out with him? Do you judge him because of how he was? Because of his you, certainly his his adolescent life is no excuse for how he was as a person. But he'd have a certain he'd only let a couple people in to be very friendly but he had a view of women uh, because of his upbringing and then also authoritative figures so he he would purposely have start problems on sets with the suits or the brass just to fuck with them or to make it harder for them to do their job because he he'd be able to have the um Superstar power to push back, and also competition. He never liked being second ba- best. Racing, he, you know, he'd have a hard on for Jim Gardner in in, in the Great Escape. Yeah, or, well, they were almost fired. Yeah, McQueen because of how his antics on the set like that, or or him going after Yul Brenner on the uh, Magnificent Seven, always upstaging him in the background and doing stuff like that, or um, you know how he would work his, his the yin and yang of the late sixties became: Are you a Paul M- Newman guy, or are you a Steve McQueen guy? You know, because of, of of they they represented the different sides of the Americana, and 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 Steve McQueen hated Newman because he 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 was like a, a well-educated person who can't had the same upbringing, who was into cars, like the same thing was good-looking. People loved him, had a lot of philanthropic in, in endeavors, and 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 McQueen was so egotistical and such a, you know, and it all comes out of the uh, insecurity. You know, he was very a very insecure person. He he knew he couldn't do like you know. Uh, big movies which near the end of his life he tried to revamp his career and do more like pictures that were about plot and, and monologues with enemy of the people you know yeah. what I mean as opposed to being just this action star but he, by the end of the 60s he became the biggest thing ever you know and people like Burt Reynolds they get their career uh, cemented by being like clones of his like you know they weren't picking pick you know the pictures that wouldn't go to him with like Navajo Joe but Reynolds would get in you know but McQueen still hated that Paul Newman like a lot of the scripts McQueen were getting and doing were stuff McQueen uh Newman already turned down so it was this you know so he got he it got baked in this idea of I, I have to be number one I have to be telling myself there's no rules he loved all old Milwaukee beer and then with the late 60s he loved he always smoked pot from from um, his teenage years till he died. Regularly, he got into hallucinogenic drugs. He got into coke in the late '70s. When he got to doing Le Mans, that racing movie in in um, Paris or in France, uh, that's when you said like, yeah, he ended up hitting Nell Adams, his wife, because he was so whacked out at that point. You know, he marries Nell Adams in the late '50s. She is a a, a huge dancer at the time. She's gonna she was tested and was gonna be cast in Robert Wise's. Um, What's the movie over here? When you're a jet, West Side Story. Yeah, but she ends up getting pregnant with their first kid, so she has to drop out. You know, and they appear together uh, only I think once, and that's the uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode Mm -hmm. where uh, the gambling one, where they meet Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah, that that, and that's I think directed by Hitchcock. Hitchcock would maybe direct one or two episodes a season, and that was one of the ones I think Hitchcock directed. Yeah, but so you know, but at the same time, you know, do you judge him because then he was a philanderer? He like it's almost he needed the reassurance and, and then also to give a, co- a context of like years with um, like the Beatles it's like women are throwing themselves at him I mean there's, there's a story where like he gets off a plane and like a 15 year old like takes her breast out to have him sign in front of his wife you know and it gets to the point where he's almost desensitized yeah you know where it's like he's having orgies You know, and it's like it's not doing it for him. You know, it's like when you get to that level of shit, you know, (laughs) or in the late 60s, he's like, you know, like you and I were watching a movie. He's having a girl. He's, he's, I'm going to say banging. He's having sex with a girl while he's talking to his friend. That became a normal thing for you. You know what I mean? So it's this weird, it's, 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 I find it very interesting. You can't make any excuses for his, for his behavior. You could try to justify it, but you know, it's just so fascinating. These people who have these dark lives and they're all because of a fucked up upbringing and insecurity and. They're not excuses, but it's just interesting yeah. to see how these. Yeah, like I said, you know, it does
0: not, it's not an excuse. It doesn't warrant the behavior, but
1: it's it, gives a context. You, it gives you
0: an insight as to why he might be like that.
1: Yeah, and it's 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 weird. So you know, you get to you get to this point where he then his approach to do and he's turning stuff down like nobody's business which is really weird I, I wish I had Well he gets had, to the
0: point where like you had to pay him to even read their yeah, script Yeah you know,
1: because he's getting so much stuff in at the time and there, there's a whole like breakfast at Tiffany's he turns down he turns down all these movies in the 60's and then into the 70's we've talked about he turned down Close Encounters of the Third Kind he turned down um, sorcerer that was written for him. He turned down the Driver Walter Hill's movie that was written for him. He turned down Rambo. He turns down Apocalypse Now. Both parts in Apocalypse Now, you know, because the you know after the Towering Inferno, he is the biggest paid star of the seventies. In nineteen seventy four, he takes a couple years off, and he doesn't. He doesn't. He wants to kind of like reinvent his career, and he's also like, it's getting too much for him. I'm the drugs, he, the, you I'm know, the, the women. He
0: wouldn't have done like the Driver.
1: Well, because by that time for him it's like I've already done that bullet yeah. in these movies. You know, I don't. I want to be as far away from cars as possible because his last movie, The Hunter, in nineteen eighty, he plays Papa Thornton. I think the real life um, uh, bail yeah. bondsman. The what do you call that? The uh, when you go after you're a uh, when you go after the bounty hunter. Yeah. Uh, he satirizes where in the movie he's supposed to be a terrible driver, so he's 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 backing into things. <laughs> and there's a scene where they give him a. I think it's a trans nineteen seventy nine Trans Am. He, when he gets out of the airport, they, they rent a car, and he's like, "I can't. I don't want this." And so the whole joke is he doesn't know how to drive stick, and he's burning out. You know, he tries to satirize it. You know, and then, you know, he he he's obligated to do a movie called Tom Horn, a western, which he liked, but you know, his company owned it. Like you have to do something. He does that, and that's the mixed reviews. So it's weird because after this movie Bullet, he only does he does. A couple, f- uh, the Re- Reavers, which is a, f- a flop, but it, it shows his dynamic as an actor. And then he does, um, baby, he already did Baby, the Rain Must Fall. But then he does The Getaway, which is one of my favorite movies. I love that Sam Peckinpah movie more than probably the my- that, uh the Wild Bunch. And then he does Junior Bonner, which is also a Sam Peckinpah movie that kind of flops. And the answer to that, Sam Peckinpah. They they criticize this is getting off on a tangent, but they criticize Sam Peckinpah because he does the wild bunch like it's too bloody, it's too disgusting. Do something normal. He does Junior Bonner, which is basically about a, a, a very not an action picture at all. It's just about a, a guy who who is a uh, he rides bulls, you know, like one of those you know yeah, those yeah. guys like for eight ten seconds. And there McQueen gets into the stuntman's guild because he does all his own stunts and rides a bull for I think it's the eight or ten seconds you need to. But the movie flops, and then you know. Sam Peckinpah is like, well, y- you tell me to do this. <laughs> if, uh, so then he goes and does the getaway with McQueen, and it becomes this, you know, that's where he meets Ally McGraw, another Robert Evans connection. He ends up marrying Ali McGraw from the getaway. And then after that, I think he does one other thing, and that's when he does well, when towering Inferno. When no. does
0: he do Papillon?
1: Pap- oh, you're right. Papillon is 73. Yeah. And that is, I'm glad you brought that up, because they have a remake or a retelling, revisioning of that just came out the, a week ago of this recording. Oh, okay. You know, which is a brand new where have you seen I've saw a couple previous for it looks good, but it's 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 hard. But it's up Papillon's based off the book Papillon, which is written by the guy that McQueen plays about getting out of French Guiana. I absolutely love that movie, McQueen, as well with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Um, and then he does Towering Inferno and he takes all that time off in the rest of the seventies. And it's weird because then he's he kind of you know, he's doing other things. He's doing car, he's doing charity stuff, he uh, he ends up he, he there's a Warren Oates movie where he doesn't get he, he he's an unbuilt stunt driver like a bicycle you know like a motorcycle guy in it so you know so when he gets the bullet getting back on task in 68 he's the one who has the say so he's the one who gets robert vaughn he gets simon oakland he get, gets peter yates involved you know and he, he ends up doing this uh this movie here and he basically they want to shoot it as like a western yeah. you know it's, it's it has the connotations of like a you know it's a, it's a good guy bad guy story where you know in in in. Typical style. You can make a contemporary western where, instead of in the middle of the movie, you click on your uh, your gun belt, you click your seat belts, and you know the gun the car chases like the shootout or like the horse chase. You know, and the end of it, you have the showdown, and like you know, it's kind of like the you kind of get the hint near the end of the movie in the last sequence or the last shots when he goes home. It's kind of like the dirty hairyish, you know, the sheriff that you know they don't like high noon you're exhausted you know it's like they don't need you once you you know your work is done you know, go back to where you, you know, we only need the sheriff or that person when the oh, ugliness comes yeah, out. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of idea. Like, you see, like, in The Seventh Samurai or Magnificent Seven, where, like, when the banditos come down to the town, you need a, someone like a badass, like well, a queen yeah. or East Well, one. that's, you know. You know, Rambo. Yeah, exactly. Perfect example. <laughs> By the end of it. Really like, like, the
0: most c- clear-cut, cut-and-dry yeah. version of, like, yeah, you're, you know what? You're in prison, but, you know, we need you to go in. We only, we only want you when we need you. <laughs> uh,
1: and it and that becomes, um, you know, it, 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 that's a theme of these kind of movies. Either it be Western or uh, these kind of contemporary cop movies. And uh, also at the time, San Francisco is very rarely used. Hitchcock had used it in the 50s for Vertigo. And um, I think there's another movie that's that's... San Francisco-ish, but it still wasn't a very photographed city, so when they originally wrote this script, they were going to take it and put it in L.A. from New York. They translated the book to script.
0: Yeah. But I think it's like when we were talking about um... You know the Blues Brothers when they wanted to shoot in Chicago. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's another thing where the 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 female mayor opened
0: it up. Yeah, they just started like we want yeah this kind of thing being done here. So yeah, come and do it. You couldn't have you know run of the city. Same thing with John Lindsay
1: in the '70s with New York, Uh, French Connection. Yeah, sure. You want to shoot here or you know we we need to bring revenue in. You know, aside
0: from it's a great backdrop, uh, San Francisco being a great backdrop, being one that wasn't too highly used at the time, so it's still kind of new you know, uh, look wise, I think they were, you know, they were, they San Francisco wanted them to come and shoot. Them, yeah. And they so gave them carte blanche, <laughs> gave them the hospital, go in the, sure. Go on the airport. Yeah. You want well, to <laughs> use the whole
1: wing of the airport. You know, they shut down you know, the we'll streets, shut down all the streets, you, you know, know we'll do whatever. And right? the, the, the police will help you. You can ha- cast them in roles. They gave them a whole wing of the hospital. So you get, that's why you get so much. There's a uh, very funny
0: moment that doesn't have anything to do with this, but before I, I forget, there's this part where, uh, uh, Simon Oakland and him are talking, uh, and I guess I forget what scene you know. It's a scene, that, and just and it's when Simon was like, yeah, "Gotta do everything, but now from now on, do everything by the book." And then two to seconds, like, "Yeah, do whatever you want." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, when he gets in the elevator. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, see, even <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like what? What? Yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll try a, to back you up. Proud
0: Make sure you do everything by the book. Who's yeah. running this? Uh,
1: you were. Is it my investigation or Chalmers? You, you know what? Do Everything's necessary. <laughs> and it's it, 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 that's a testament there to the characterization, which I guess is kind of from the book where you know it's like you could tell he's. And I—that's I, just where it gets into like I like the idea of the character build-up, where it's like you can tell that Simon Oakland as a character has a big affinity for for him as a cop. Well, um, there's
0: some kind of there's also some kind of backstory. What's like, well, you know, he asked for me specifically, but he knows if you're involved, there's going to be a lot of press. Oh or yeah, something. you make good press. Yeah, in the, the papers. This, there's this backstory that we're not clued yeah. into. That's only hinted at. And it's part kind of the realism. Of which I like you about know, it.
1: I love the scene. We want to get into the minutia. We're talking about Simon Oakland when he first call when he when he goes around and checks. The the hotel out at the beginning of the you know where the the witness is. He calls Simon Oakland's character, and it's the first time you see Simon Oakland. You get to the house, and it's like a Hazel kind of a house, like you know, yeah, with like Don DeFore and yeah, And I love that whole thing where it's like the the one the kid call the kid answers and says, "Hold on a minute," and then they're in an argument. You're not coming, you know. I'm coming, you know. And then Simon looks like, "Okay, come on, get out. Come on, go, go, go. Get in the car," you know. And then he, you know, it's like we don't even know what the hell that is, but it's so ingenious because it's like he's actually we're catching the family. In this, you know, and it, it, they're almost like non-actors. Like we're catching it like in a reality show kind of. Yeah. But you got to remember, all this is staged. They have some sort of business about something's happening with the kids, and Simon Oakland is very like the, you know, the suburbia kind of a dad or whatever, or the kid, you know. And, and, and then he's because it, it's Friday afternoon, and I love that, you know, if, if this is the course of the weekend, by Sunday that he catches. Um, when Robert Vaughn goes to Simon Oakland, he's going to church of roman catholic upbringing and you hear those bells chiming and those are the same bells at the very beginning of dirty harry when you see the the um the, the you see it the it comes up and before you see scorpio you see like the montage of the people who were f- killed in the line of duty you yeah. know it's the same kind of and it's also another connection between the two movies but there's there's so much of that little Business that you don't ever really know about, you know what I mean? That, that, that they they add into the movie that I love, that adds to the, you know, the yeah. the, the authenticity, the realism. Well, that's what I mean. Like yeah. it's
0: a, like I said, it's kind of like, I don't know how it really if there's a better term for it. I'm sure there is, but this like slice of life. Yeah, like it's just we're just like thrown into this yeah. three day, two and a half days, three yeah. days of this guy, and it doesn't like you It don't doesn't need. feel like a movie. Yeah, it feels just like okay you're chronicling
1: we're along for the ride yeah (laughs) and then that's i've I've alluded to this on a couple times on the other podcast like these are the some of the sometimes some of the stories i most get into i love those things where you're just a witness for a journey and not so much and then at the end of the movie like you said it's not clear-cut it's just it's ending it's going to be monday morning tomorrow the life goes on he obviously has a career or he had a career before uh and this is you just got this segment I mean there there was a kind of clock because of there's only a certain amount of time before stuff that happens is going to get out of the cat out of the bag so to speak
0: you know the other thing I'm still not clear about is like Robert Vaughn's uh Involvement and motivations. Is he part of it, or is he just...
1: He's a CD character. I mean, so basically, in a nutshell, the plot is it starts off in Chicago. One guy... Three hours into it. Or or two hours into it. (laughs) And um, uh, this guy gets away, and I love the opening, too, Lalo. I mean, just, just the opening shot of, like, just when you see Bullet... And then it goes into the to the to the font of bullet, and then you see the guys waiting there, and they're extreme close ups, and it looks like the mob from Batman that go to raid Access Chemicals, like all yeah. the hats, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the trench coats pulled up, the collars, and they try to get this guy. This guy gets away. He goes to the garage. He sees Vic Tayback. Vic Tayback. They look at each other. Vic Tayback's like, "Get out of here!" He gets out. He gets away. They shoot at him. The credits, end, and then it's kind of hard to hear, but then Vic Tayback calls somebody and says, "You know, we lost him. And the guy in the other end is like, you know, it's your brother. So, uh, you know, if you can't do it, we will. And you're going to pay for it. And that's the end of the conversation. And that's Chicago. Then it starts off in San Francisco. And what we find out is that Robert Vaughn, the Chalmers character, has a witness that's going to uh, go state's evidence and talk about the syndicate, which is they used to use that a lot in the 60s and 70s, which is just the mob, the mafia. And, and he's going to, for, for turning state's evidence and whatever, he's going to expose the mob and whatever. So he's going to testify at some subcommittee hearing that's happening the following week in San Francisco. So Robert Robert Vaughn, to help his political career as a councilman. Robert Vaughn. Imagine that little thingy. Robert Robert Vaughn, to to help his political career, wants to use this guy as a star witness and try to slingshot his his career by uh, having this be like the highlight of the committee. And this guy, Robert Vaughn, come to San Francisco to give this this. This testimony, and he wants uh, the best cop to find out his bullet because he makes good press in the paper to safeguard him until the weekend's out. And then what ends up happening is that the the witness they're they're watching uh, is shot, almost killed. And Steve McQueen's character, over the course of the next twenty four hours, has to figure out what happened and get who did it by the end of the by the end of the weekend, which he ends up doing, and it ends on a Sunday night. Robert Vaughn's character is very interesting because I only. In doing research for this saw that there was a theory that Robert Vaughn may be in on it. In on trying to kill Bullet. Because I've always looked at it at the very end of the movie once Robert Vaughn realized that he messed up and he can't be an asshole anymore to Bullet. He tries to and I love the exchange of them at the airport when the plane's coming back on the tarmac and there's only one swear in this movie. It's bullshit. When McQueen says it to Robert Vaughn, he tells him to get the hell out of there because, he, you know, this is now their job, their side of the street. The cops are going to handle this. Yeah. When Robert Vaughn starts seeing that there's a shootout on the tarmac, he leaves and you see him get into the limo. And I love the you know, he see him get into the limo, you pan, and they have that great bumper sticker, support your local police. And it drives away. And it's like Robert Vaughn doesn't care. It's like, oh, okay. You know, that, that, it's like, it's almost like, um, It's no skin off my back. It's not going to hurt me politically. On to the next day. Because remember, when we get to the hospital and the guy from Willy Wonka is there, he only, the guy, his witness is shot and is in critical condition, could die. But Robert Vaughn's only there to get the picture to prove to everybody that he has this witness. Yeah. And even though this witness is supposed to be in hiding, that he wants to show everybody then that, you know, this they he actually is going to, you know, um, follow through in whatever accusations he's made. So he's, he's really slimy in the movie. Yeah. yeah, you know, and he, and it, it's well, I feel like you know, there's this implication that uh
0: Bullet says, "Well, who else knew where he was?" And in he kind of implies, says, "Well, like they knew where he was, and they used your name." So there's like this implication that maybe he's involved,
1: or he's talking to people. He's telling people, well, "Look, what I have," you know. He's like, "It's got, it's got leaked out."
0: And then there's this moment where he goes, and I think it's. You know, it's probably mostly read of that like he's being racist, where he doesn't want the black doctor to work on him. Yeah. But you could also look at it like I want my own doctor because maybe I want access to him so that I can have him
1: killed. I mean, there was a you know, there's like there's a little bit of ambiguity there. There's a shot that McQueen really fought for, and McQueen really wanted because of what was happening in the era of when the um, the black doctor, um, what's his face, George Sanford Brown, is operating. That you see a white. Nurse, rub his forehead, and yeah. Queen's like, "We want. I want that shot. I want the." show people what the, you know and, and what's happening in the 60s with civil rights he's very important to him and um well the
0: fact to have an african-american yeah it's first off in yeah. 1968 it's a pretty
1: bold yeah to have him being the, the you know and i think that it, it it very easily could be read as a prejudice or, or racism that that robert vaughn is like thank you for your help i want someone really credible yeah,
0: you know? yeah. and
1: it's also telling and like i said it could also be read as that he wants access to the witness or whatever We like could we
0: could have we could finish what we didn't get the finish yeah
1: and that's an interesting take on it too that that the uh that Robert vaughn is behind because it's another point people say well the reason they think Robert vaughn is is uh implicit in this is because uh all of a sudden the hitmen are starting to go after mcqueen and in my read of it they're not going after mcqueen they know McQueen knows where the yeah. witness is, so they're just tailing McQueen to find to get access to the witness, as opposed to trying to kill. It's only once McQueen confronts them and there's this big car chase do they start actually trying to shoot at him and stuff like that. So that's where I was like, well, it's not really they're not really trying to go kill him. There's not attempts on his life yet. Per but se, but also like
0: Robert Vaughn sits there and watches the shenanigans on the on the the tarmac at the end the tarmac for a really long time. Yeah, well, Almost I think like, once he's, well, like he's invested in like what's yeah, going to happen. He's here? looking to see how it
1: plays out, and I guess I think once the other the guy starts shooting at McQueen, it's over. You can't really talk your way out of, you know, any, you no, know, the guy taking shots at a cop, you know? Um So it also, t- the movie takes this kind of weird
0: turn where I feel like in conventional storytelling, the way we view movies, we find out that they find these, they, they go and they get the passports sent in from the it's
1: very it's very procedural
0: but it g- but it, yeah, there's all that and there's the, the, With the evidence e- yeah. thing which is you know i think by most people's standards from a today's point of like view tedious. it's kind of a little bit tedious yeah. but it's interesting but there's this idea of i mean correct me if i'm wrong the what happens is and spoiler alert but at this point you're you're listening <laughs> uh the guy that gets killed in the beginning is not the witness no don't and so we sp- are to assume that he's somehow paid by the witness. The
1: witness that we see escape at the beginning of the movie somehow gets this guy and and tells this guy cuz
0: it's insinuated that he got off with a, he got away with like 2 million.
1: He's the the whole point of this is that he was a numbers man for the mob and it's and he was skimming the skim. He stole money from the mob and got away. And his brother, you know, lets him get away because they're brothers. And then there's this chase and they want to kill him because and then this, this guy, who, how he thinks he's going get, to get away is on the front of it, he's going to go and tell Robert Vaughn's character, Chalmers, that he's going to become state's evidence. But what he really does is he, he gets somebody he knows uh, in the book, it's he, the guy knows the girlfriend because she has a salon where the guy lives in the hotel, and the guy looks like him. Is that he's, he tells them, listen, I'm going to give you an all paid trip to, to Europe. You just have to go to San Francisco, act like you're me, meet with this guy, Chalmers, and go pick up this letter, or whatever. So when you watch this version with that knowledge is when the guy, he does the first thing on his list is he goes to the hotel at the beginning, which is I think is the hotel from um, Vertigo. He walks in. They have no... They're like, no, there's no... He's like, no, there's no... You sure there's no message for me? Then he gets into his thing and he goes, call Charmer, Chalmers, which is Robert Vaughn. He puts him in a hotel when... The police bullet and his, his team show up. The guy's like, "What do you you know? Who are you guys? I'm only supposed to you know." So you could really tell he's like, "What the f-? you know?" He's like, yeah. "You know, I was only." And then he starts reeling the implications. Like you know, they're like, "We got to order some food." And he's like, "Order some food." And, he's like, and then like, he's like, "Stay away from the windows." I think the guy starts getting really worried. And then that's where we get to the point where later on in the movie, where he takes the. It's another thing. Rob uh, Peter Yates always says like people ask him why did he take the door chain off because the door's locked. And Peter Yates's answer is, "Well, if he didn't, there wouldn't have been a movie." but it's more of a broader oh, is that... I mean, they could
0: have broken down the door. Yeah,
1: but it's, he's able to... <laughs> it's it would have took longer, and I think, the, you know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have the element of surprise. But it's almost like they knew that the doorknob, the, the, the thingy would be unlocked. Yeah. But the guy does it because I think the guy doesn't realize there's going to be any attempt on his life. Yeah. And when you have this scene, when they kick it in, this is another thing we're talking about 68. You had Bonnie and Clyde it was the first movie to use squibs in a movie. Bullet is the first movie to use squibs in conjunction with Blood Packets. So if you read like Robert Ebert at the time and other people, contemporaries, who when they first saw this movie, that scene in the hotel room was brutally graphic. As graphic as uh, Bonnie and Clyde, maybe more so because it was so overt and shocking and caught people off guard. Yeah. So when you see the scene of him... Uh, they shoot the the one cop in the knee in the knee, the younger cop, and then when they shoot this guy, the shotgun of him, how they do it, like the guy was putting his su- suit jacket on, I love it, so his hand's still in an awkward position trying to put a suit jacket on, they shoot him. He flies up against the wall and it's very brutal, very realistic to some extent. Yeah. And it's shocking to people. So and then it's like I love the guys are professionals, they have a breakaway Winchester pump and they take the earbuds out, you know, because, you know, that this is what they do and it's a two man job. So it's you know, it's shocking the level of of, and then the other scene people were startled for even more so is, uh, which I love is the little scene where Jacqueline Bisset follows him into the motel to find, and they find the dead girlfriend of the guy that was killed. In the this is, sounds like it's getting confusing for a lot of people. <laughs> There's that shot of her yeah. dead on the floor, <laughs> and and they call it like garroted, G A R R O T, and it's like one of those things where you have like a when you strangle somebody, you you wrap it around their their neck, and then you have like a uh, a piece of wood on either end and you get able to pull better like piano wire and yeah. you see her on the ground dead like that and they cut to an angle of her upside down looking like really you know crazy it's like that's shocking like this is almost like a forerunner to like law and order. And like the procedural stuff you'd see. Like, yeah. like not so much, I mean, you're already getting it on TV with Dragnet, but this is stuff you're going to go on and further see. And I love the idea of then she walks in on him and she's taken aback, and he steps, when he notices her, he steps into view, blocks her view, takes her outside. And then there's this discussion, which pe- some people don't like at all, her dialogue through the movie. But when he takes her away and they pull over and they go out, and there's this long shot of them. And the the the, uh, the the long grass is in the foreground, and you see the big ocean between them in the background. And she's asking him about how can you, how can we be in, a, paraphrasing, but it's like how can we be in a relationship when you see this kind of violence every day, and it doesn't affect you. And he's, you know, and he politely says like, well, this is the world I live in. This is what I'm exposed to. Cops have to deal with this. You know, I love that idea of you know the theme yeah, there. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's it, it. I mean, it
0: seems a little forced. It can it can be interpreted as being a little forced. But then the like the last shot of the movie doesn't mean anything without scene without that scene.
1: Yeah, because people talk about. I think it was either either because he's like you
0: don't feel anything. And yeah, and the last scene is like him looking on the mirror. It's like he does feel
1: it. Yeah, and he doesn't want to bother her with it. Like he's like it's almost like he's he's ashamed at the end of that, that beautiful last scene where it's like you know, he puts the gun up, he checks in on her, and then he's Not washing the his b- face. Probably
0: not the best place to put a kid. No, on the yeah, he's on top of the
1: <laughs> still you know, railing. On the railing that it could fall <laughs> with his stuff. But he's he, he he's wiping like the filth off. Like he's coming home with the dirt of the job still on him and he looks at himself in the mirror and he and then you have that beautiful ending with the lalo kind of score of like the bullet theme, which is something you get in the Dirty Harry movies. The Dirty Harry ends up getting a the theme and it ends the same way of the Dirty Harry look of uh, you know, of every Dirty Harry movie kind of ends the same way with him walking away with the 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 camera craning back so um and you and a lot of the motivations are solid in the movie i mean you norman fell the police commissioner's a dick but you could tell he's an asshole and on robert vaughn's side because he believes that robert vaughn can do a lot of good positive things for the department he can give them good press he can give yeah. them the money they need so you kind of get the motivation of why he's on robert vaughn's side simon oakland you know even more than you think he would stands up for 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 bullet and says no it's his investigation he's calling the shots i've given him the responsibility of it i'm going to you know i'm going to hold him to as much as i can his feet to the fire but i respect him you know i yeah. trust him enough you know well my point about like
0: the ending or like the twist being kind of convoluted it's like a, typically in a movie you'd have that the that the witness was going to change his identity and leave the country yeah but but in, but in, in there's, they add this like this other th- level this, the other level of like convolution yeah if that's a word it's, there's a guy <laughs> it's like there's a guy that's having somebody pretend to be
1: him yeah. and he's going to assume the the identity to get of the guy ke- that to that get him set well, up he get he <sighs> it's implied that they pur- I guess it's implied they purposely leak where this guy's going to be because he wants him killed. Yeah. So that, so that the, he can
0: take his identity and leave, go to Rome.
1: And the heat will be taken off of him. And the mob will think they got him, whatever. And maybe they were going to try to shoot him in the face because he gets shot like in the upper shoulder area and he gets kind of damage on the there face. Is
0: a girl also involved that we never see?
1: Yeah, it ends up being dead. The one that he ends but up... What's his face? It's that guy's girlfriend who gets but don't shot. don't
0: they call... Doesn't he at the airport? McQueen's like... Is there a blob? Is there the name of the girl? And it's like she was on a plane to. She had a plane to London, but then she switched it to Rome. Yeah, like there is there. I interpret it as that the guy's bringing a woman with him,
1: but we never see her. Yeah, and I don't even know if she. Not that she doesn't make the flight. Maybe he's just using both those tickets, and she doesn't. You know, maybe she doesn't get on. You know the the the, the other guy, but at the end, that's how he's able to get him. Uh, And that's the level. That's where we get the convoluted because you see this guy at the beginning of the movie. And then you don't see him again until you see him. You don't realize Jacqueline Bessette, while she's waiting at the motel in her car, she sees him walk out. He yeah. just committed the murder of killing the other guy look-alike's girlfriend. Yeah. And that's the first time we see him. But the, the he looks so much like the guy that's killed, that guy who shows up in a bunch of other stuff in the 70s. He's in The Driver, the Walter Hill movie. It's They look so much alike, people get confused, and that's where and the like, confusion comes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I thought he died. You know? So there's, there's, that's the bit of confusion, and it's never you know no one ever looks at the camera and says like in an Agatha Christie like this is why it happened because you know you know yeah, you get, like yeah. the sum- summation so it leaves it to the audience to try to figure out wh- what has happened and we've kind of laid it out here what's happened and is Robert Vaughn involved is he not involved who knows um it a lot of people in reviews talk about Vic Tabak more like he had a bigger part in the movie because he's referenced a lot but he only has he's only in, like two shots at the beginning he has yeah. some dialogue you know so um This is where the convolution comes. But for me, it's like I personally, because I'm not very smart, I find like you know a lot of Sherlock Holmes, a lot of Agatha Christie stories are very convoluted to me too. Until it's all spelled (laughs) out at the end, you know. And supposedly the conceit in all those is that you're supposedly supposed to give enough away to the audience that they should be able to delineate the answer on their own. And a perfect Agatha Christie or, or, or Arthur Conan Doyle. The, the audience is supposed to have all the facts to, to have them be able to come up logically with the same conclusion to detect the fact. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to withhold anything because that's a cheat to the audience. So at the end of this, you know, I find it being convoluted, but it doesn't seem to me being that much more off than. I mean, this won an award for um, the script, one for like the I think it's an, uh, an Eggert Award for, for Mystery or whatever, you know, if, of the fun, maybe 1969 for the script. So it, 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 it was recognized uh for, for 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 uh the, the 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 script what is it yeah 1969 won an egger award from the mystery writers of america for best motion picture screenplay and bullet was also nominated uh it won an academy award for best editing and it was nominated for best sound um and then you know a bunch of other lesser uh festivals you know nominated one stuff like that so as we ra- um, as
0: before we wrap up i think it's worth mentioning i mean he's probably less of an influence on Bullet, as than he was on Dirty Harry, but I think we should at least mention Dave Tashi.
1: Yeah, that's that's another interesting point. That, um, he's a detective, or in they don't have detectives in San Francisco, they have inspectors, but he, he was an inspector that uh, McQueen went and uh shadowed him and Don Gordon. Don Gordon also is, is a good friend of McQueen's in real life. Don Gordon shows up in Papillon with McQueen, he shows up again in, um. Uh, he's his partner in the towering inferno and don gordon was a was a motorcycle friend with mcqueen and we can get into the car chase in a second but there's an element of that but they both go and shadow these cops and th- the one cop which is named uh tashi david tashi maybe yeah and he is the one mcqueen shadows mcqueen actually then appropriates the the the, the shoulder host holster that this cop wears where traditionally when you wear a shoulder holster your gun is pointed down, so when you go across your chest, you pull the gun out, and the barrel is pointing down. Where this is a quick draw holster, it's very unconventional. It's up; the gun is upside down, and the, the the barrel is facing towards your armpit. So you would think, if you were an idiot, you could shoot yourself. But it's it's made that way so you can go across your chest and draw it out quickly, almost like you you draw a quick draw a, a thing. So McQueen takes that idea of that thing and, he, and the, uh, the 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 Colt um uh, revolver he uses and that's an invention from tashi tashi dirty Harry Eastwood also you know Tashi was an
0: inspector on the zodiac killer yeah
1: and that's that's the that's the bigger point is where you're going is that that it, and a couple years later this is the summer of 68 or 67 or, uh, or when they're shooting bullet and stuff like that zodiac it happens in 68 and 69 I think or the years there and that's what you get Dirty Harry out of that. You know, the, the Scorpio killer is a direct by, byproduct, by, byproduct of the Zodiac killings. And Tashi and the other guy, his partner, uh, were the leads on that case. And that's in that David Finchner movie, Zodiac. Mark Ruffalo plays Tashi, and then Robert Downey Jr. plays the other character. Yeah, in the movie, and I think there's even a throwaway line that Robert Downey Jr. says, like, "Even McQueen used your shoulder holster and bullet, or something like that." Yeah. You know? like so, that. but that is, I think, that is very, yeah, uh, interesting. As, a, as the wor- it's a small world that this an,
0: guy, and even a smaller world if we look at the concept of movies we've done in the past, but the idea of uh, the more sleepover fare. Yeah. Uh, George Lucas allegedly named the Tasi Station. On Tatooine after Tashi. <laughs> oh, really? Because <laughs> apparently, when he was a teenager, he became, was very—he became very obsessed with the idea of the Zodiac yeah. uh, investigation. Not so much the, the but the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he felt that Tashi got kind of like a Broad deal, or he got a broad deal how he was represented. In it, so he named Tashi Station uh, allegedly. Yeah, <laughs> <And> oh, that's, <laughs> that's pretty interesting.
1: Mean. And t- after Dave Tashi, and another uh, link to Lucas here is that Lalo did the soundtrack for THX eleven thirty eight too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so Lucas was from Northern California. Yeah. Anyway. So this is all his bread and butter here. Um, we could talk about the, the the car chase, of course. This, I, you know, it set a standard. People now, it's so it's amazing nowadays because it's still. this is a movie that it's still brought up and remembered today especially with the Mustang Uh, the Mustang car which is funny came out I think premiered in 64 and the first time it was ever seen was on an episode of Hazel the show I love with Shirley Booth and um Don DeFore and they did a commercial for it. It was the first time uh, you know you saw the Mustang on TV it was Hazel like look at the new Mustang. She's <laughs> like you know and she says something like you know I need a new word. It's not a doozy. It's a Mustang. You know like how great it is and there's it's in the episode of um, uh, of Hazel. But you know ag- again it's, it's one of these things where McQueen picked the two cars. Uh, they were originally going to get the, well, Warner had a deal with Ford so they got these two Mustang Fastbacks um, 1968 uh, Uh, Shelby cars, and uh, they were going to use Ford Galaxies as the car they were going to chase the Mustang with, but then the, the Galaxies were too heavy, to do these these jumps and stuff so they wanted to find something else and they found a dodge charger and and that dark dodge charger look was kind of new at the time and yates loved it because it was a black car it looked almost like a shark it looked very villainy Mm -hmm. you know like the like it has headlights that hide you know and and it it does have a singular look where even at the end i think of the first isn't the first the fast and the furious movie i think it's that Charger, that exact year, model, and, and color is in the climactic scene of the first Fast and the Furious. I not see Vin Diesel movies, Yeah, i so you know. I've never <laughs> seen it. In the, in the remake of, of Gone in 60 Seconds, you have the Eleanor is a Mustang. It wasn't the General Lee? General Lee is a Charger, correct. General Lee is a Charger. Um, at the end, that's like the late 70s, so it's a very iconic car. The Mustang, they take these two Mustangs, and uh, they heavily fortify the underneath, the suspension, the shocks, the undercarriage of the car, the chassis, uh, under McQueen's assistance, and I don't understand why, but I think it's awesome. He takes everything Ford-related off of it. He, ta- he takes all the emblems off. He takes all the chrome in the grille, the Mustang horse. He paints the a lot of the chrome either the body color, which is Highland green, or just black. He puts racing car tires on them, and you have two cars... One's going to be the car doing a lot of the jumps and the other one's going to be like the detail, you know, uh, idea of Peter Yates is to put the, 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 the um, camera in the car. So they took the hood off the Challenger, and they got everybody into the trunk. And this is the days before seat belt. so these guys are just holding on, doing 100 miles an hour, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's not something you hadn't seen before, because certainly like in other movies, Thunder Road maybe, or other movies of the 50s, where you, car chase movies, you'd see like the POV of the, of the shot in the car. But this was very groundbreaking of seeing a lot of the action from inside the car, of what's happening. And a, a, a brilliant stroke of uh, Lalo Schifrin's is, his his soundtrack is very sparse in this movie. It's not as like uh, like luxurious, maybe as a uh, Dirty Harry. It's only used in certain points, like to build the tension in that hospital chase, which I love. You know, um, his themes and stuff. But you have the switching gears, shifting gears, which is the song, the build up of McQueen follow them, following McQueen and McQueen following them, and then yeah. the car chase starts. But as soon as they the car chase starts, the music stops. Yeah, and the whole chase is done. Uh, with just the sounds of the engines in the car, you know, and I find that's awesome. You know, you don't you don't need a soundtrack in it. They didn't modify the charger. Uh, the charger didn't need any modifications. Um, well, all those just a side note for uh, all those car sounds. Then uh, Philip
0: D'Antoni seven used, ups. All, used all those exact sounds in the seven yeah, ups. Yeah, because it's funny even because though they weren't the same car <laughs> No, he's like
1: driving like a Nova in the Seven <laughs> Ups, which is funny and. Uh, and they use the, it, it, they all sound like Mustangs and stuff like that. <laughs> and so, and then the the guy McQueen's following in this is Bill Hickman. Bill Hickman's a actor, also a stuntman driver. He was friends with James Dean, and he was a racer like James Dean, and he was driving the um, station wagon behind James Dean the day James Dean was killed, and Bill Hickman was the guy who actually got out of the car, ran over, and uh, extricated James Dean's body out of the little spider or the little bastard, whatever. I think his car was a spider. And um, Bill Hickman, it's cool because the, they wanted to have, which I think is a stroke of genius, they wanted to be able to have close ups of the people driving, you know. So. McQueen did a lot of his own driving in it, you know, and you could see when it's McQueen driving because either the rearview mirror is done in such a way you can see him or the scene where he sticks his head out of the car to show people he's doing his own driving. And since it's Bill Hickman doing his own driving, you can have close-ups of the two doing stuff. Bill Hickman ends up being the FBI agent in the French Connection. He does a lot of the driving along with Jurgensen in the French Connection. Mm-hmm. And I think he's he's killed in the... French Connection, the FBI agent, and then he, he grows his hair a little out, and he ends up being the uh, the driver in the 7-Ups that Roy Scheider goes after with what's-his-face, who we love, who, who's in from Invasion, uh, USA. You know, the oh, actor. Yeah, he yeah. plays the other guy, and that's I, and it's one of his first movies, so B- Bill Hickman has a, has a storied career. There's a great f- featurette we can put um, that Uh, along with this cast on our website where you see like it's one of those warner brothers features of like them in production doing it and you said them doing a lot of like the driving and trying to get comfortable going close to each other and all that kind of a thing and you know it's like 10 minutes long this thing and it's set like the standard of like afterward, you know you get into the 70s along with these cop movies you get movies like the original gone in 60 seconds the original vanishing point uh you get the french connection so it's like each movie's trying to top the other or this yeah, movie's Carver's I mean, I car, think,
0: you know. I think it's still impressive to see today. It's that they say that uh, it is the it is what ga- got the editor uh, the Academy Award. Yeah, um, for Frank P. Keller. Uh, it's funny as an editor watching it, you can see that. You know they're probably covering a lot of the action with multiple cameras. Yeah,
1: so you get a lot of the same take. You get, see, you yeah. see a lot of the same takes, yeah. but from different angles. But it's and that's the ignorance of the audience; they don't realize it. Yeah. You see, like the Volkswagen a couple times. You see the bond. There's, there's another car. You know, you're
0: like he takes this turn, and then like three minutes later, he takes he the ta- same ta- turn, he takes that turn again. But you yeah. saw
1: from it, you're seeing it from a different vantage point. The, 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 cha- the charger loses five hubcaps in the, same course of the yeah. scene near the end of the movie, where or uh, near the end of the scene when they go into the gas station they did it wrong and the car missed the gas station but they but by the use of editing they were able to you know to cover it up pretty well you know
0: but I think you know it is still impressive when you watch it today but I think it's less impressive because now there's so much more to compare it to There's There's so many other so many other chase scenes but But in the you know, thinking about it in the context of 1968, like no chase scene had ever really been done like this. Yeah, before. I mean, th-
1: his big contention was he didn't want the camera cranked. He, he didn't it want it to be like look. You know, to fast, be, sped up. To
0: sped the film sped up so that it looked like they were going fast. He wanted to actually be yeah. going fast.
1: And Peter Yates only wanted him to do like hit 70 or Which 80. We
0: talked. I think we talked a little bit about. In context of when we talked about the Blues Brothers,
1: yeah, yeah and this is a movie I forgot we you know, to, to mention with all these. It's another scene with the Blues Brothers getting like, you know, in the '70s all these, you know, it's like Carver's car and bullet, Carver's train in, in French Connection, uh, like train or Carver's bus, I think in the Laughing Policeman or Badge Three Seven Three. You have all these movies, the original Gone in Sixty Seconds, which is insane to the end of it you know by the late 1980 you have the blues brothers where it's like a thou- it's m- much like the original gone in 60 seconds where you have like 40,000 police cars yeah. going after this car that's a movie that has no plot but it's a very good movie if you're into car chase movies the original gone in 67 uh, 60 seconds and vanishing point but uh this mo- it, it it yeah there was nothing like it so people were going this is the first time where you have people going 20 30 times to see you know one hand you have the reality of the scenes of like surgery or the ambulance or uh, the brutality of people getting shot but then the other hand of these this this car chase stuff people have never you know it, it you think of for 1968 how exhilarating this must be like the, the edge of your seat where you see you know you're hearing the real sounds they're actually there's near the end of that chase there's shots where you could tell like they're flying and they're doing like 100 and 120 miles an hour and i love you know the shots where they get to the point where they're in those canyons and the the shotgunner is trying to hit McQueen, the car, and he's he's you know trying to go back and he's swaying the car, and then it hits the windshield. Or there's a shot where they come around a corner, and the Charger accidentally knocks a camera out. And in the DVD release, they fixed it where there was a flash, but they took the flash out for the Blu-ray release, so it looks seamless. And that's why you have McQueen come around, and he has to he has to you know he he takes it too wide and stops the car, but he keeps going and he sticks his head out. You know, he burns out going backwards, burns out again to go after him, you know, and it's just a, like a ballsy scene for Motorhead. You're like, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> so it becomes this thing where the car now, you know, Mustang had this illustrious um, history and then until like they had a lull in the 80s and 90s and then in 2003 maybe they rebooted and they gave, they put out a Mustang Bullet kind of a car at Highland Green and It didn't look that great, but then in 2008, they rebooted it again, and that car, the new Mustang, looks very much like the new model. Like the original Fastback, how it looks uh, in, in Highland Green. And then I think it's in 2004 or so, they do a commercial where it's like uh, out of the Field of Dreams or McQueen, they use actual footage, you know, they CGI him in. Yeah. He comes out of the cornfield because this guy made a racetrack, gets into the new car, and he does the bullet shape. you know. And it's, this is a weird, iconic movie where you have people, we were talking about the beginning of it, how iconic his look is in this, where it's like Indiana Jones where people are, are very much into trying to buy his look. You know, in the seventies, like we have Dirty Harry, every cop wanted to have a forty four Magnum. In the seventies everybody all the cops started wearing turtlenecks and these you know, he wears a um a wool I think it's a wool uh Blazer, but it's a shooting coat with the patches, and you mm-hmm. look at the patch. The left patch is a little bigger than the right because it's made for like being a shooter, where you put your left arm down if you're a rifle on the ground to steady yourself, you know. And it's and he's wearing the Italian racing shoes, you know. So this look became very, you know, with the cardigan. And th- another thing is getting into technical terms. Since it takes place over the weekend, it takes it's it's true that you know the the dress coat is a little lax on the weekends, casual for undercover. So that's why friday morning when he meets robert vaughn at the the part with another thing is i love that scene where he goes to robert vaughn's house and robert vaughn is having kind of like a benefit for all those young women one of those social clubs and you see how awkward it is for him and how they shoot it like you could see from like their shoes or feet and you could tell mcqueen is so out of his element the character and he's listening to them talking about growing flowers and plant you know what i mean It's, it's so out of you know this is not the world he inhabits you know and they do it brilliantly, but you see he's kind of conservatively dressed with the tie and the suit, you know. But then once the weekend hits, he's wearing the cardigan or he's wearing the turtleneck with, the you know, the jacket and stuff like that. So my point is that this is a movie where it's so iconic, where people are still trying to embody the way he looks in this movie, as well as with the car. Um, they're still doing commercials. They're in January. They're now in 2018. They've revamped the car again, and it's a new version of it's coming out, the Bullet Mustang. And so, in January two thousand eighteen, we could put as an extra in this cast too. There's a commercial where, very funny, where a modern Charger uh, and a modern uh, this new bus Mustang Bullet Mustang are in a parking garage looking for a space. It's a woman driving the bu- the Mustang, and it's two guys that look very similar to the two guys, and they're looking for a parking spot. And when they start, sf- and then. They even have a little nod to the original chase, where you see like the same model and color VW Bug like pull out, and they want to go for that spot. And then when they start the the them, they even use the original Lalo Schifrin music, but it's remixed, so it's like got a hip hop beat, beat behind it. Sure. But if you know your Lalo and you know this movie, you're gonna pick up right on it. You know that they're using they're sampling it. So uh, even and then uh, since we have to wrap this up, a fine point on this. The two chargers were destroyed beyond recognition. They were trashed. The two Mustangs that were used were supposedly lost forever. The first one that ends up breaking its axle when you see it skid across the highway, they trashed that. That went to a junkyard. Sat in a junkyard in Mexico until like 2010 or 11. Or maybe 2017 or 18, I'm sorry. And they somebody took it and were going to restore it and remake it until Eleanor... The car from Gone in 60 Seconds to remake. And then they realized wait a minute, this is the original Mustang bullet car. They were able to have, because it has matching serial numbers to two cars, They you know, well, people know things like this. So they were able to see, like, you know, the holes in the car for where they had to the put for rigging for the camera chassis and all that kind of a thing. And um, so they were able to, want that car has been found, that was lost. So they restored that, and that's now been on the circuit where that's the original Mustang. You can see it being shopped around. Another guy, a private guy, ended up buying the other Mustang in the 70s, and McQueen, into the middle 70s, wanted the car back, so he started, you know, I was going to say emailing, he was he was messaging <laughs> this guy, you know, writing letters, like, I'd like to buy my car back, I'll give you whatever, it's, I'll buy you a new Mustang, I'll double, you know, but the guy's like, no, thank you, we want to keep it in the family, so... These people moved to New Jersey and since it was just a regular car, they used it all their lives for like, you know, bringing the kids to school or or the the wife was bringing the girls to Girl Scout meetings. And then in 1980, the car had some problems and they just put it in a garage. And so for the rest of like for the 30 years, it sat in a garage with like a blanket on top of it and they stored stuff on top of the car. And then like 2017 or 18, the, the son of the guy who ended up dying, who's now our age, he called Ford and said, hey, I have this car in my house. I want your help restoring it. Ford was so into it. He was like, I'm not selling it to you. Uh, You can, you know, you can help me restore it. I'd love to put it on exhibit. So Ford agrees to take him in the car. They restore it and they take him on. And now this is what's happening now. As this cast is coming out in the fall of 2018, this, this car is on the circuit of all the motor conventions with the new Mustang unveiling or the two cars side by side. And it's really amazing for, for car aficionados to think that these two cars are still around and they've, been able to verify these are in fact the two lost Mustang fastbacks, you know, that McQueen used in this movie. And it's it's an odd movie because I was trying to think of other movies where like it's still so referenced, the car chase, or it's used in commercials, yeah. or it's a reference, like I said, in the first Gone in sixty or the remake of Gone in sixty seconds, or the first Fast and Furious. And you're right now it's, it's kind of numbing because people go back and watch this, and it's, yeah, it's a good car chase, but. It's you have to wear that nostalgia cap and think that like this was the first time it was ever done. Yeah, you know, and you know, and then into the seventies it was such co- you know these cow you know there might not have been a Dirty Harry without Bullet. You know, and you get into the seventies these movies where John Wayne I think he turned down Dirty Harry and then he does these he does a movie called McQ MC Capital Q in the 70, four that takes place in seattle it's actually a very good movie but he's driving a firebird in it it's the same color it's highland green as the bullet mustang and you know uh it you get a whole copycat of these movies like yeah. the laughing policeman we brought up or the seven ups you know all these 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 genre pictures you know and yeah. then you get the subgenre of the action hero with the vigilante movies and stuff so Um, Uh, just a note:
0: Lalo Schifrin's score. There was a record of it back in the day, like an LP of it. But I think he had, which happened with a lot of this, is annoys me. Yeah, with a lot of film scores back then, is they he went in and he re-recorded the score. Yes, so they never
1: released the actual cuts used in the movie. So when you got the LP, it was re-recorded, and then two thousand, and then he re-recorded it again. That's the that's the edition I have when they put it out on CD. You know, I I uh, he recorded it in Cologne, Germany, with uh, a couple people. Or is it Cologne in Germany? I thought it would, but it was with a big band. It was in Germany, I think. And he used I forget the name of the big band he used, and they sound identical. Plus, he recorded. Uh, different variants of the songs, but you actually re-recorded the actual cuts they used on the the thing. But they still wore re-recordings, which kind of sucks. Yeah. So it's like they 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 have there's like a great acoustic piece of the bullet theme on it, and some other stuff. They have like the incidental music when the guy, right before he's killed, he's putting money in the radio in the hotel, and that that big band song comes on. They have that, but it's like I want to hear the original. So then. In researching this cast in like 2014, supposedly they finally released. Well,
0: because you brought it up with uh, taking a one two three, I think Film Score Monthly.
1: Yeah, that was the first, the for the David Sheer Shire. Yeah, that was the first one they put out. But for Film Score Monthly, yeah, Film
0: Score Monthly put out like a re- completely restored two disc uh, version of it. I think limited to three thousand copies. Very late to the party, and. <laughs> It has, you know, a bunch of the, it que- has like the original soundtrack, has all those ones that we were talking cuts, about, yeah you know, that are, that were featured on the original soundtrack LP, but it also has all these other cues and versions of the themes and stuff that are all from the
1: movie. Yeah. Which I need to get now because I didn't know. I'll
0: make you, uh, I'll let, I'll, I'll let you borrow
1: it. I'd like to borrow and hear it. Yeah. Cause I didn't know. Um, cause, uh. It's a fabulous score, and it's like we've we've talked about Lalo to the cows come home, but it's such a different score from Dirty Harry. Yeah, but it's amazing because the Cincinnati Kid, the the the, the, the card playing movie, Lalo did the soundtrack to that, and Lalo shows up. We talked at sixty eight. He does the theme to Mannix. Did he do the theme to Starsky and Hutch? Maybe he. I don't.
0: I know he did some music for it. I don't know if the ultimate theme that they end up using because I for, I might be incorrect about this, but I think early seasons has a different theme than later seasons so it might be a m- so he might not have done like the theme that we all know but yeah. by then by 67 or so he had done Mission Impossible he, he's
1: written the theme for Mission Impossible that everyone knows and loves he does the soundtrack to like Cool Hand Luke he does uh, the at early he, 70s he does
0: uh, After the Dragon yeah, and we we talk a little we, bit about yeah, that yep. score in our Enter the Dragon episode with Michael C. Morona
1: he did um he did like Kelly's Heroes with Don Siegel he did a couple he did Coogan's Bluff a couple Eastwood movies um, he so he's a very pr- pr- profet- prolific He had career. done a
0: score for The Exorcist. That Which was Bill rejected. F- that Bill freaking threw out. Yeah. He
1: didn't like it. Which I think has finally gotten released, right? If There was
0: reports that it was going to be released on vinyl. And then just the regular soundtrack came out. So I don't know what's going on with not that. Not the Not the Lyle, not the Lyle one. Uh, I believe did he, did he did Amityville Horror.
1: He did do both anime, Amityville horrors, the did first the, and the second rush hour <laughs> movies. He did all the rush hour movies. Yeah, and that was a kind of like a back and fray kind of thing for him like, you know, cuz he did a lot of episodic stuff. He did a lot of TV movies cuz they were big in the 70s and 80s. But I mean, he he's got a lot of you know, he's I think he's from Argentina. Mm-hmm. He's he's got that Bossa nova kind of like you and I are big fans of Antonio Carlos Jobin. Yeah. So he's got that kind of a feel, but just his scoring, you know, we talk about a lot on the Dirty Harry soundtrack about the score there and the score here I find like people used to write theses in the 60s believe it or not on like the dichotomy of Steve McQueen verse Paul Newman you know and it's like I would love to see a thesis or do something where it's like you, you, the, the this analyzation of of the character the theme you know of the both these movies bullet yeah. particularly in Dirty Harry and then the themes of what different soundtracks are saying you know
0: yeah Schifrin Sh- had a there was a few albums that came out I think in the 90s that when we met I was Particularly obsessed, it was, it was this idea of jazz meets orchestra. Yeah, and he put there was one specific one Which called. Is it
1: jazz meets symphony?
0: Maybe it was jazz meets symphony. Yeah, yeah. and there was this one album g- called Firebird.
1: Yeah, you got you gave me a copy of that with a lot of John Fattis is on, right? The, the, yeah. the trumpet player that is Dizzy Gillespie's protege that did the soundtrack to the Gauntlet that worked all at the through film freshman school.
0: year when I was living with Dion. When we met, I was like obsessed with
1: that. Yeah, album. and and then on that it has a cut of I think Mission Impossible. There's he it, does Mission Impossible, and it
0: breaks into. Uh, Dave Brubeck's take five, take five yeah, think. and then go
1: back, and that's also um, John Faddis is the trumpeter soloing on that, yeah, because so. then he was the head of the jazz, he was one of the teachers in the jazz program where we went to school, so then by the end of the when I found out about his connection to Eastwood and you know I'm talking to him about like oh my gosh you did the soundtrack to The Gauntlet and talked to me about Eastwood and he was you know and then, so he became joking like he'd see me he's like film I can't even hold a camera so we had like a back and forth uh, John Faddis and I he's the he was the head of the Carnegie Hall jazz band that Eastwood did like a big double disc yeah. album at Carnegie Hall Uh so the soundtrack here is phenomenal. It's one of those ones that, you know, it, it keeps getting re-released and stuff, and it's on, like, best ofs. Lalo has, like, a best, like, like jazz meets Hollywood, yeah. and it has, like, all the cuts from, you know. And it's 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 sad because a lot of them are different takes, you know. It's, it might even, not even be Lalo doing them. Yeah, well, you know? that,
0: unfortunately, because of the limited, uh, ver- you know, the limited aspect of that release we were just talking about, where they finally have actually put cues from the movie it's to find that one it's really expensive if you can find it
1: yeah i think it's on discogs or so on some website for like <coughs> 130 bucks and i pay that because it's like <laughs> i didn't know it's just it's so it's maddening because i've always <clears throat> when i got the the 2000 release so you could immediately tell it's re-recorded because mm-hmm. it's not exactly right or especially at the end the theme like right over the credits there's like a 30 second theme which is very very much like dirty harry's theme at the end uh where it's almost like you know you sit back and you think about what's happened and that's not on the soundtracks and it's like really maddening it's like ugh. Oh. um to bring Don Gordon up they so you know they used to go they were dirt biking buddies or motorcycle ba- buddies and he got really close and he's the one who got a lot of these people jobs and he got Don Gordon the job as the cop uh a second about their dichotomy I love the idea like I you get the feeling that bullet and he's not I, I always get the feeling in these in these uh relationships or in these scenes that he's not like uh, a subordinate you know like they're like on the level playing field like at the beginning when he's introduced a Bullet and you know he comes in he kind of gives him a rough time like come on get out of bed let's go yeah you know yeah, him the
0: Delgetti character yeah
1: Delgetti, which is uh, Don Gordon's guy his partner in it and then later on when he tells Delgetti he's gonna they're gonna hide the body get me a uh, an ambulance with you know no lights we're gonna go to a private hospital you have a look where he's like okay you know but like so you get the feeling that like he's not telling them what to do like del Getty very much it's not explored that much but it's the implication that they're kind of the same partners li- yeah more than, than then he's telling them what like he's the totally. head totally yeah um so don gordon him they used to, at night, go, like, you know, motorcycle racing on the streets of San Francisco, and they go get high with pot and go going around. This is the same time, 68, it's the Hayton Ashbury, so, like, all that crazy shit with the Grateful Dead and the Doors, all that 60- San Francisco hippie stuff's going on. So, one night when they were driving on their motorcycles, um, the story is that, like, you know, McQueen went too fast, went up in the air. And then came down and almost lost the bike and then came to a stop. And Don Gordon's like, You all right? He's like, Yeah. And he's like, But that gave him the idea for the car chase. And this is the first time, which is again a cliche that you see in these movies, but the cars m- getting air. You yeah. know, that was amazing at the time They just think they're going so fast, they're, they're making air coming down. And uh, I
0: think it made San Francisco like one even of the more mirror kind of like, locations yeah, for, shooting, f- for shooting car chases. <laughs> and it's funny
1: because Mustang had an exclusive deal with Hertz for rental cars so the problem used to be that there it'd be extra money to get insurance on like mustangs in san francisco through hertz because people would be going and doing this (laughs) with their (laughs) mustangs you know destroying the mustangs trying to re re replicate the this scene uh this this thing which is funny and um uh what else i had one other thing but i don't remember um and then the whole scene at the end at the airport you know like the um I love the tension that's built there, you know, in and, and and like you said it, you could see that it's not ripped off, but homages with heat. Yeah. The whole ending with them, and then he goes under a 707. That's really him getting blasted, and he gets up and runs. There's all his own stunts. And, you know, I love in the background, they're playing, um, they're writing songs I love, but not for me. You can hear it on the music, you know, and, and and I love his, uh, you know, the even the scene with him and the hotel guy when they're talking to the hotel owner and they play that good cop, bad cop, and I take him in, and he's like, and then suddenly he, the guy's like, oh, I, I do remember now. Yeah, and then you square look at their face. Yeah. And then you look at McQueen, and he gives this like, sm- I love the smile he yeah. gives, like, he's like, ir- irritated smile and then you know there's so many moments because
0: you know now we're so uh conditioned because of parodies and spoofs and stuff that you know he says he had a kind of a square face and then i just because he goes over to like you know to do it like on the thing to you know have like the little uh, they're gonna try to redo kind of a sketch thing but with templates of yeah faces and this stuff. is what eyes like like or noses and he says looks kind of square so I just imagine the guy going over and drawing a square <laughs> on a, a piece square. of paper <laughs> that's, that's like, like this, this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly you know and also that's another example of contemporary because he's like he left in a cab what kind of cab the sunshine line and then Don Gordon looks at McQueen, McQueen walks out. and gets in another example of like yeah. the, the great. Finds a, the yeah, finds Robert Duvall because you know <laughs> and the car wash to exactly where to go. Yeah, and he you know and then that's the classic line. You he know, put in a lot of change. You know, um, and uh, you know also McQueen. There, there are pictures um, for, from the movie of him with his gun drawn, and it looks like it's the scene when he's down in the basement of the of the hospital running, and then the, the laundry comes out. He yeah. turns around, and you don't see it in the movie. He's gun drawn. But in a lot of, like, press releases, you could see, is it on? Yeah. It was on the back of the book uh, that Dion brought of, uh, of, of Mew, the new witness of the novelization. You see him with the gun drawn, it, so it's like Except a press he's release. he's got black hair. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, black there. He's jet black for the cover. But <laughs> he, never, he never draws his gun until the end of the movie and I love that because you look at like a, a character like a Dirty Harry where it's like the first thing he does he's taking that 44 out and he's fucking shooting you know yeah. and it, it it goes to like the the I don't know maybe the innards of the cop where Dirty Harry is more of shoot ask questions later where he's very much like a progressive he's not going to use the gun unless he needs it it's a tool of the trade but whatever and I love you know during the chase at the end when he jumps off the plane runs after no music when the guy goes into the tar- into the airport terminal McQueen stops pulls the gun out and then you have lalo's music starts yeah. and then he and i love the sequence of when they go back into the and he's walking trying to find the guy and mcqueen's walking around and, and you see like he he has his eyes down he passes a pillar and when he passes the pillar his eyes already back up watching the guy and this music's drawing this tension you hear like the, i don't know what they're using like flutes or some sort of like uh wind to get this kind of like building up tension and then McQueen sees, like, the cops come down, and he turns, so the guys, they won't recognize him, so they won't blow his cover, and then up to the, when he has the shootout, finally, the last... Sh- and he you know only shoots when he has to, you know, that yeah. kind of a thing. I love all that. It's all my bread and butter. So, yeah, uh, this is one of my favorite movies. And um, I don't know, I guess maybe I, I've tried to explain why. <laughs> In two and a half hours, or however long it's taken. Yeah, you know, you know it's sure fun.
0: For years, I've been a reluctant uh, been reluctant to do this one, but I'm glad we did it. Because yeah, I mean, it kind of reminded me how much I enjoy this movie too because yeah. I probably haven't seen it for at least a decade either and I
1: think it holds up better than you would think it would you know I think there will be people that don't like it of course
0: and you know like any movie and I think just there's going to be people that don't get it it's either that it's going to be too slow or there's not enough going on in the plot, yada, yada, yada. But I think there's going to be a lot of people, hopefully the kinds of people that listen to two guys talk about a movie for three <laughs> hours. Yeah, that, that, that,
1: that have a level of affinity for you know, that it. that will probably,
0: even if they haven't seen it yet or haven't seen it a long time, will revisit it or visit it for the first time and, and appreciate, yeah. you know, kind of the filmmaking aspect of aspect all. of yeah. this movie
1: and then when the movie came out like to say how much of a blockbuster this was is an understatement i mean how much money it was like he could print money at that point you know by 1968-69 He was also like you one know? of the producers right so. yeah so he was just you know he, and he was dictating and it's just that that's the sad thing about his career where he just got so he was trying to like make Lama for so many years and then he hated freaking james garner put out green prix you know, and then he was trying to make a car movie. and Then that movie fell apart. Solar, his his company, his production company, fell apart making Le Mans. And then into the 70s, after he did Towering Inferno, he kind of was just didn't know what he wanted to do in life. He started. He grew a beard to look like much like Jim Morrison did. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of his life, you know, grew a beard to look different, not be the leading man. You know, Richard Krenner has a story that he's driving his car, his convertible, one day on a California road, and his motorcycle flies by, and he's like Crenna! and he looks in his <laughs> McQueen and a big beard, you know. And he gets to the end into the 70s. Where McQueen wants to come back and do a movie called Enemy of the People, an Epson play, and the, the, they were like, "Are you kidding me?" It, it's all—it's a play. All you're going to be—it's about a doctor in the turn of the century who discovers that like the the, the little sleepy town, the, the 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 spring that they're getting the reservoir water from is poisoned, yeah, yeah. and he's trying to tell the town that no and then he becomes like the heretic and he's like no the doctor no the doctor's full of shit his medicine malar-, you know becomes like him versus the people enemy of the people Charles Derning's and it's great it never even got a release you know it never got officially released in America domestically it was a big blow it was a commercial failure through Warner Brothers with McQueen and then he was contractually abrogated to do Tom Horn, which we talked about great western I love it but true story as well And then on that set, he started to realize he was having uh, breathing problems. And he he was saying to the nurse on set, you you know, about, uh, you know, he's having respiratory issues. And then by the time he was doing his last movie, The Hunter, in 1980, he was diagnosed with mesothelioma. And uh, that was because of his, uh, the majority of it was because of his huge uh, exposure to asbestos in the Merchant Marines and f- through his car racing years and just not people not knowing. Yeah. And he tried all kind of conventional treatments with cancer stuff. It wasn't working. He started seeing this other person who was doing very unconventional treatments. Supposedly that stuff was actually working. He went down to a Mexican hospital to have surgery. And while he was down there, they had the big idea that his cancer was kind of in remission and they had this idea of to operate because he had this big um tumor in the stomach that almost made him look like you know like he was overweight and uh, so, uh, by that point he became a recluse he wouldn't let anybody see him because you know he was remembered as this guy i mean he dies in november of t- 1980 and the hunter only comes out in september or august of 1980 and that's kind of a flop too LeVar burden's in that as well yeah yeah, yeah. um and that movie, you know, it has its problem, but it's sad. It's a ch- another Chicago movie because at the end he's on the sh- he's on the L in Chicago. We should have brought that out in the Blues Brothers, and, <laughs> and he and he, the car he has a car go off that famous. There's a parking Which garage. It's also
0: 1980.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a parking. So it's the same world, like you know, the parking garage. That's like a spiral where the car goes off. They they lambasted it in the commercial a couple of years ago. That, but. So McQueen goes down to Mexico to have a uh, surgery to take this tumor out. They, when they take the tumor out, it's dead. It's a crusty old tumor. And he survives the surgery uh, and he wakes up and he says something in Spanish. I forget what his last words are. He's like, I did it or something. And, he, and then he ends up having a pulmonary embolism in his lung. He has a blood clot that goes to his heart and he ends up having a heart attack and dying. And it was so, the press was so fierce. They were trying to get down. They're paying people to get, a, to get a picture. And some French newspaper was able to sneak in and get a picture of his dead body, which supposedly um then was on the cover of this uh, french newspaper but i've never been able to see the picture but it was scandalous but he died in 1980 and he, age 50 you yeah. know so you just think about jesus you know the kind of life that he led, led and i think near the end of his life he started realizing you know i was a dick to cer- certain people i was a womanizer you know i mean you know the drugs did take over did i waste my life going after this unattainable urge to buck authority and you know fuck you to the world and you know that kind of a thing but it did some of those actions were kind of uh not mitigated but you know a little better digest a little cup of sugar by all the philanthropic stuff he was doing on the side he wasn't a total dick or asshole you know <laughs> and of course we
0: talked a little bit about his son who's in chad mcqueen chad who who's ends in, up being a karate kid yeah karate he's one of the cobra guys. yeah
1: he's a big yeah he had a because he was a he got into the martial arts with when steve mcqueen was with bruce lee and james Colbert and doing martial arts in the early 70s and that
0: guy that stunt guy that taught them all martial arts who <clears> i pointed <throat> out who's also in the beginning of enter the dragon Was one of Steve McQueen's martial arts teachers? Yeah, yeah, because
1: McQueen got big into like uh, it's that's another story to get into. You know, uh, McQueen he got into a fight while they were doing the sand pebbles in this weird Hong Kong bar. And then McQueen suddenly realized, shit, you know, I need to, you know, if these people are going to, st- because he went to Hong Kong and they started challenging him, like they did Bruce Lee. You <laughs> yeah. know, you a pussy, you won't fight me in arm wrestling. So McQueen asked this big sumo wrestler guy, come on with me. He went into the bathroom, knocked the guy out, and they ran out. Then McQueen realized I should learn really how to defend myself better than just like, you know, the bare knuckle stuff. So uh, it's, yeah, it's all, there's all these other stories that are very interesting, these conduits of, of logic and, and, uh, the, 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 crossover and stuff like that. Um, Since we're wrapping up now i'd like to i guess make the announcement that i have a book coming out uh that's going to be um probably hitting the shelves in december uh it's called blood in the streets uh it's been something i've been doing for a very long time uh blake's known about it and uh it's one of these love of uh labors of love where i started writing it way back in 2002 so it makes you think: Is it that bad? It's taking this long <laughs> to come out. But it was probably the combination of watching, being really obsessed at the time with a McQueen bullet and Dirty Harry, and like I said, that idea of wondering what takes a cop to go from the Lieutenant Frank Bullet to becoming a guy like Dirty Harry. So my story: it's a thriller, police procedural, crime fiction. I wrote it originally as a screenplay in two thousand three and four and then uh like Blake knows once you have a screenplay you get in this limbo where you can't really get it seen to anybody because you kind of like a lot of in the business where uh people uh you know they won't look at unsolicited material so you end up sitting on these screenplays for so long so I wrote some other things and then around 2012 a guy I work with said why don't you just turn it into a book because you'll have a better chance of getting it out as a book So that's what I did. So in 2012, I turned it into a book. And then, uh, Jesus, in 2017, I ended up getting uh, a publisher who wanted to put it out. And now it's on its way of coming out at the end of the year. Uh, And it takes place in one week in 1976 up in New Haven, Connecticut, where I'm from. And it's about a detective who kind of is losing his grip on reality and falling off the wagon while he's investigating the uh, murder of of his best friend's uh, daughter or family member. You know dealing Make with a this great thing. stocking thing. Yeah, exactly. So, I will uh, certainly um, give you more information as it comes out. I have to hone my uh, my little pitch on it, <laughs> That's get it down to a line. First try. Yeah. So, uh, it's called Blood in the Streets. It should be out in December uh, once, you know, it's on Amazon and I have a a, a, um, a street date, I will certainly let everyone know of uh, people who are interested in, in in purchasing that and hopefully maybe one day then I can turn it into a I would say when I wrote it it's funny you think like you could turn it into a movie, but now we're at the point where maybe I can turn it into a Netflix series you know like you know, my idea is still going to, you know, it started out as a, as a book or as a script, so I want to eventually maybe make it so, uh, you know, uh, that's the, and I thought it'd be a good time to really, because it's kind of related to this you know so it's a it's a good thing to to very proud of you dion thank you blake thank you yeah blake's of course we all know blake's already had something that he had come out you know and he knows that the trials and tribulations of trying to get some crap out you know and it's just <laughs> so long not crap as in his stuff is crap yeah, but just yeah. trying to get something to market because it's so and then even in the it, it's for another day but just the, getting this out here just like you know fiction into the market people are interested in you know they want to do it just to like you know why don't you self publish it and it's like you know it's like oh so hard you know so it's like my wife calls me the little train that could because I keep going even I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna, do it, I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it so uh it should be exciting and like I said it's 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 if you like movies like this like Dirty Harry like the French Connection the 70s uh kind of gritty uh you know movies then this book is uh is gonna be something you'll like so uh build some momentum up as we get into the fall
0: yes more info to come on that
1: yeah and um that's about it for this week so that uh, this turned out being a lot longer than I thought it would <laughs> i tell good you that. We, Yeah, Good thing we started early. I was over preparing because I didn't, I didn't know if I'd be the one just talking the whole time because you know I didn't know, uh, you know how much of interest you'd have in it. So uh, it, it, this it ended up being really fun, and now we'll get back into the groove of things because this uh we got a anniversary coming up yeah next next week is our next episode is our anniversary that's going to be our what fifth year i maybe your fourth year i think it's our fourth anniversary
0: yeah and then uh then we got uh, then october the october halloween horror yeah then movie then
1: extravaganza then we're seat button out seat belting ourselves <laughs> in because we're going to be going down the road of uh you know the halloween october we do four episodes one a week for the month of october and then before you know it, november and then we're in right. Christmas. Then we're into Christmas. And then we're 2019. So where does the time go? I don't know. I don't know uh, at all. But, uh, you know, thank you for listening. Again, as always, you can check us out at uh, – uh, we have our new uh, partnership with CLNS Media. And you can see – Dot com. Yeah, you can check us out there at CLNS Media on their website. They, uh, they have a little uh, – website they do all kinds of podcasts and stuff a boston area based website click us on the i think it's the uh lifestyles we're uh, in the
0: lifestyle section and there's also a podcast tab but you can just look at their other podcasts and of course we're on itunes and stitcher yep uh of course you can find me at scored to death on twitter facebook and instagram I also have the Score to Death podcast, Score to Death the podcast, and of course, my book, Score to Death Conversations with some of Horror's Greatest Composers.
1: And you can find the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. So you can um, connect with us there. You can like our stuff. You can uh, retweet our stuff. You can ask us questions and uh, become. Get into the conversation we're having. Uh, to check out our stuff on Instagram and stuff like that, and uh, you know, we'll be back in two weeks with a. Uh, uh, I don't. Know, do we do we do a teaser for next? You know, it's kind of within the format well, of the If
0: you if you if you've been a fan of our past uh, anniversary episodes, you won't be surprised. I think you won't be too surprised yeah. with what's coming up, yeah. and I think you'll enjoy it.
1: And and uh, you know, a word to the weary that you know, the past couple podcasts over the past couple months, we've been going long. <laughs> So I can only imagine how long we're going to go with the uh, with next week's, next episode. You have you know? to bring another tape. Yeah, gee, you have to turn that tape over, you know, <laughs> you SLP. Have go, you have to go SLP on yeah. that Because it's going to be a long one. So, uh, But thank you very much for, for, for your continued support and, uh, you know, your suggestions on what to do. As we like to say, so many movies, so little time. And uh, before you know it, we'll be back yelling at you again with an all-new episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Later.